Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And a very good Sunday morning. It's it's a little warmer this morning than it has been, but uh, actually supposed to cool off sometime in the next 24 hours. Uh, forecast I'm looking at, and I don't really believe it, but it says the high tomorrow is only going to be in the low 80s. It would be very unusual to have that much of a cool front, but I know they're saying we have an increasing chance of rain. And uh, Anyway, I sure hope they're right. I won't be too surprised if it stays warm, but uh, this will be the last really hot one for a couple of days, according to the meteorologists, and I sure hope they're right. Lots of things to do out there, lots of things to do inside with the house plants. Should be getting that fall vegetable garden. Some things planted, others getting that soil ready, so there are many things to do and many things to talk about, and that's what we're here to do for the next three hours, and then we get to talk pets for an hour after that, so going to be a good Sunday morning. Uh, why don't we go ahead and get started with phone calls? I understand that Judy and Mark and Thomas have already called in, so so let's say good morning, Judy. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Okay, I have a Mexican sycamore. Okay. Which is like about three stories tall. <laughs> and um, it's turning yellow. And it's I just got- went out and I picked off, a, uh, cut off some small little branches that hang down. And there's no bugs on them or anything. No, it's gotten a little dry. You know, we had really, really good rains up until probably about six weeks ago. And then after that, everything that uh, we've gotten has been fairly insignificant. And Mexican sycamore is one of those trees that demands a little bit of extra water. And when we go without more than three or four weeks without rain, uh, if you don't water, it's going to do a little bit of what you're seeing right now. Now, it'll drop a few leaves. It will, you know, come right back out. But what what happens? Uh, where the water goes, it doesn't evaporate from the soil. It's taken up by the plant, lost out through the back of the openings in the leaves called stomata. Uh, the process is called transpiration. When the plant chemically senses that it's putting out more water through its leaves and it's taking up through its roots, it says, well, let's drop some leaves and get things back in balance. And that's what you're looking at right now. It's uh, The leaves aren't droopy or anything. They're just turning yellow and a number of them dropping, correct? Yeah, well, I mean, when I drove up the other day, I looked up, and the whole tree is, is like, turning yellow. Yeah, it's, it's gotten and, a little dry. I mean, we've been getting, I mean, I keep track of the rain. I live out in Cibolo, and mm-hmm. it's, you know, well, we haven't had any this week much, but and so, like, an inch and a half isn't enough, or two inches isn't enough in a week. Well, it depends on whether it comes all at one time or whether it comes a half inch at a time. 
and um, you have to consider those plants' roots are pretty deep, and a half an inch of rain is only going to water the soil maybe three inches deep, three and a half inches deep, and the great majority of the Mexican sycamore's roots are below that point. It's why if you go out in nature, the place you find these trees is growing along creek beds and river bottoms and things like that. So, um, no, it, it needs a really, really thorough soaking, and uh, the rain's just kind of tapered off. We had some really, really good rains early earlier in the year and then it kept raining but it was raining half an inch at a time instead of giving being a good thorough soaking rain so um i suspect the trunk on this tree is what maybe 18 or 20 inches across if it's three stories tall well i don't 18 yet probably no not 18 it's not that big okay but it's really tall <laughs> I, yeah i wish i hadn't i'm gonna tell you i wish i hadn't planted that tree it's been more trouble and then when the leaves come down, that's like, forget it. But anyway, <laughs> um, let me ask you something. I can water it, which is a big thing. Your phone's breaking up. Say that once again now. But, um, anything that I can do to, to bring the green back fast, like give it some iron or something? Well, the the yellowing is not due to the lack of iron. If you want to help it, there's a product out there called Super Thrive. The mm-hmm. bottle makes it look Just like snake oil. Yeah. Yeah. I would uh, I would make two or three five gallon buckets of water and you know add a couple of capfuls of Super Thrive to each one. Uh, that's what's going to bring things back most quickly. Now, unfortunately, once those leaves yellow, it is hard to get them to really turn green again. But what will happen is you will encourage that tree to put on a bunch of new green foliage, and uh, the yellow lots of them will drop off, but it won't be nearly as notice- noticeable when you've got lots of good new vegetation coming out all over the tree if we're lucky mother nature may give us a good watering but i would give that tree a good thorough soaking and then i do probably three five gallon buckets with super thrive in the water i pour those uh within 10 feet of the trunk just you know kind of on three points like a triangle around the tree Uh maybe four or five feet out from the trunk Uh, i would give it that and that's going to get it looking better much more quickly Okay, so yesterday I, I did my um, my xylosmas that I'm tr- that are barely you know they're like two feet tall now and right. But I did uh, a teaspoon of um, Super Thrive and an ounce of has um, to grow, and I did two gallons of that on each. And okay, so, now was that was that a teaspoon and a uh, two ounces per gallon or in a two gallon yeah, watering can? No, it was it was a teaspoon and one ounce of uh-huh. per gallon. Okay, okay. And I put two yeah. gallons on each one and, and, because you told me that they had deep roots. <laughs> Right, right. And that is a good thing. You use way more Super Thrive than you needed to. You could have used probably a quarter of a teaspoon of Super Thrive because that stuff's super concentrated. Uh, but that was a very good thing to do, and your xylosmas will respond to that. And um, it's the, the thing about plants' growth during the summer months, root system or anything else, um, they, there's what we call a compensation point, and that's how much energy it simply takes the plants to stay alive. Um, you know, and then anything that's left over above and beyond that, the plant can put into extra growth. In the spring, the compensation point is very low because uh, it's just not stressful. You know, it's, the, the weather's very nice, and there's usually 
really adequate moisture. So the compensation point's very low, and the plants have all this extra energy to put into putting on that burst of spring growth. We get into June wasn't so bad. We get into July and August, and the compensation point keeps going up and up and up. And the plants don't look any different, but they don't have much extra energy left over. You probably feel that same way. <laughs> you yeah. don't get tired nearly as quickly on a cool day as you do on a hot day. And so that's why the growth slows down in the summer months. And it certainly will typically pick up again in the fall. So um, I'm not surprised that I'm glad your, your xylosomus have put on two feet of growth. Uh, you probably get another six inches of growth out of that this summer. And then hopefully you get another couple of feet of growth this fall if we have a, a reasonably long fall before it gets uh, extra chilly but uh, yeah you're doing everything right I think you just uh, you use more super thrive than you need to that won't hurt anything but the bank account but as you know they don't give super thrive away so you can no, cut way back on well, let me ask you something okay now on the um, on, on the Mexican sycamore because I've got the five gallon bucket so how many say a teaspoon uh, in a five-gallon oh, bucket, yeah. I'd probably use half a teaspoon of Super Thrive. And if, yeah. Mm. And if you want to go ahead, that, that stuff, you know, their standard maintenance rate on that is one drop per gallon. When we have something in stress, we bump that up a good deal. But uh, you just you don't have to use a whole bunch of it. Old Dr. Thompson never, well, and I think it's his son that's carrying on the business now. They don't let us in on exactly what all is in there and what different concentrations. You can smell it. No, there's a lot of B vitamin in there. But it is a very, very concentrated uh, product, and uh, so it's. I, I'm sure they would love for you to, to use a lot more of it, so you'd have to run right, by right. more. But uh, five gallon bucket, I you know, I'd, I'd use probably two or three capfuls, which is going to be the equivalent of probably half a teaspoon. Okay. I have to say, I don't usually measure. Uh, but that's, you know, that, yeah. that's just what I'm going to kind of slug in there. And I'm probably going to repeat it in a couple of weeks. And what you should see is you should see new leaf buds developing. You should see new leaves coming out toward the tips of the branches. And not going to change overnight, but it definitely will change for the better. Okay. And should I use some has to grow, you think? I certainly wouldn't hurt anything. Okay. All right. Oh gosh, it's already getting hot outside. I'm, maybe I'll wait till <laughs> it, it started hot this morning. Yeah, turn that hose on and let it run, and uh, maybe wait till tomorrow morning to do the Super Thrive because yeah, really, if the really, yeah, yeah okay, if the weathermen so are accurate, it's going to be a little cooler tomorrow morning, and give you a little more inspiration to get out there and enjoy. Well, I hope so because nothing's moving outside right now. So <laughs> yes, thank ma'am. Thank you so much. You're sure welcome, Judy. Thank you for the call this morning. All right, bye. <laughs> Goodbye. Um, let's go ahead and talk to Mark. Uh, good morning, Mark. Good morning, Bob. Hey, good morning, sir. How are you today? Oh, good. Yeah, get out there and we're hoping for some rain. Get some stuff. Yep. Got a, got well, a, they're giving us an increase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all those blasted seed heads and. Oh, it's uh, it's that time of year, but uh, they're giving us a reasonable chance that we could have some uh, some rainstorms over the next uh, three or four days. So I'm certainly going to try to remain optimistic about that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. First, a couple of comments. The um, so super thought the, the the instructions used to be like one or two drops per gallon or something like that. Right. Sometime in the, sometime in the last ten years, 
the instruction said one teaspoon per gallon. It was actually on their on their box. I either they diluted it down, you know, their product down a whole lot, which I don't think is the case, yeah. or that was a misprint. I was surprised. I didn't. I didn't yeah. quite know what to think about that. Anyway, yeah, I don't. I don't use nearly that much. Right. 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 Next thing we we seem to have what's kind of unusual. The wild hogs kind of cycle around here, come and go. Mm-hmm. Right now, there's mostly young ones, and there's one right. or two young ones that are rooting up. The, the it's the first time they've gotten in our south woods. They're rooting up the prickly pear and eating the bulb underneath on the bottom. Oh yeah, yeah, that's very common. Yeah, the uh, the their younger cousin, the javelinas, do that all over you know south and west Texas, and uh, um, it's they're going not only after the uh, you know after the the nutrition in there, but also after the water in there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I kind of mixed feelings. Uh, I've got to go pick up all the pads, or they're going to sprout. But mm-hmm. so, so I finally bought the the big four by eight foot cage trap to try to catch yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Well, so. and a friend of mine who traps regularly told me that he, you know, he baits. Uh, he'll soak his. Uh, corn overnight or even for a couple of days let it really start souring and uh then he just puts that on the ground and puts the cage on top of it but he said you go get that super concentrated i think he said hawaiian punch flavored kool-aid one of the really stinky sweet 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 kool-aids and he dumps that in the bucket of uh you know the the fermenting corn and uh puts it out and he says it's just like adding candy to uh a regular meal for a kid and uh, said the hogs just can't resist it i i've got to start trapping hogs too i got trapped earlier this summer and just uh my schedule hasn't really allowed me uh, to trap the ones that I need to trap. But uh, that that's what he says works well, and I have every reason to believe him because he eliminates a lot of hogs from the neighborhood. Do you have the cage, and or do you have a problem with deer going in it ever? Oh, no, no. The, the cage is, uh, um, you know, the type that uh, I have the doors stay down on it. And the hog pushes through and yeah. lifts up the door to yeah. get into it, and the deer don't deer don't do that. Yeah, at least they haven't yet. Okay, I was surprised last night. Nothing that light corn went close to the trap, so the corn was all still there. <clears throat> anyway, so next thing, um, all this rain this spring has caused a problem now. Particularly, the cucumbers and the butternut just went crazy. I mean, they're mm-hmm. like two, like three times as as much vine as normal. And, and right. the butternut leaves are huge. Mm-hmm. Well, so now they all wilt badly, even starting, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh-huh. Um, so somebody mentioned, and I think it's true, the butternut will sometimes root along the vine. Have you had that It's unusual. It can, but uh, it, that's, it doesn't usually do that. If it's going to, it's normally going to be at a leaf node. But um, uh, that that would be uncommon. I'm not going to say it's unheard of, but it would certainly be uncommon. Because ours can't, because everything is mulched with this with, with all this mm-hmm. wood mulch we have, and so yeah. the roots can't yeah. get the root. It couldn't get to the dirt if it wanted to. Sure. Okay. 
But I think, you know, what you need to feel the soil carefully, Mark, because a lot of times uh, those things are drooping just because it was cloudy, the sun came out, the wind came up, and don't rush to water unless you feel the soil and it's dry. My my general rule is if it's uh, droopy in the afternoon, don't worry. If it's still droopy the next morning, water it. Yeah. Well, when because you'll do you'll do a lot of damage. You can kill stuff watering it when it's drooping, but the soil hasn't dried properly. Yeah. When the when the leaves are hanging straight down, you really get worried about it. Well, then you know, yeah. and uh, things other you know the thinner or the thicker stem squash, and you start worrying about vine borers. But that's not going to be a problem on your cucumbers, and shouldn't be a problem on the butternuts. Well, another problem with the rain cause is that. The, the roots went out way past our, our drip hoses. Normally, they mm-hmm. stay close to the drip hose. So now there's all these right. roots out there that are not getting dripped. So we're there you go. hand water that. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so so and one butternut has a stem that's like an inch and a half to two inches now at the, at the base. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so next thing. Um, so we got some nice Juliets at HEB. <clears throat> they look pretty, but they're like at least two feet tall. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So what we do is we typically just drop it deeper into the soil, you know, an inch or so. How deep do you think we could drop that in? Well, I'll tell you what the pros do and uh, what I do when I have something badly overgrown like that is rather than try to dig a deep hole, I'll just make a little trench. I will lay that plant sideways in the trench so that just the, you know, the end of it I sort of turn up and out, but I don't dig any, really any deeper, but I've got an inch deep trench that I can just lay that stem horizontally, put the soil on top, and they take off and grow like gangbusters. So it'll turn, it'll turn, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I guess we'll do that. <coughs> Last thing, and this is the tough one. I think I mentioned this several years ago. We've kind of figured out we have a, a, a fruit-growing problem, we think, that's, well, so we have some some decent soil. Our, our mm-hmm. orchard is maybe a foot to 18 inches, and then it's, well, well the big orchard has some dolomite and some caliche. Well, when uh-huh. the trees get to a certain point, apparently the, it gets a lot of roots into that caliche, and they're mm-hmm. turning chlorotic. And, yep. and like our our plum tree now is just about it was yellow. It's completely yellow, and I'm just and that and several trees have done that. It's like when they get to a certain age, they start turning yellow. Uh, well, and I'd I'd be giving them some azomite. I'd probably be uh, you know using some lava sand, some things like that around them, and uh, that will help. But um, you know, you you you're dealing just with the problem, not so much that the nutrients aren't there, but as they get into the more alkaline layers, the nutrients just aren't available. Uh, anything yeah. with a high cation exchange capacity is going to help that, such as uh, azomite, such as uh, you know lava sand, such as uh, just more more organic material. Uh, knowing that that is a problem for you anytime you plant new fruit trees. I would uh, create a, a raised area, either a bermed-up area or make a little raised bed with, you know, rock or whatever, and try to right. try to plant that tree 12 inches higher. And I think you'll get a longer productive season or longer productive lifespan before it uh, gets into that yellowing phase. Yeah, that's that's what we that's what we're trying to do. 
But, uh, the one thing you can do that would probably give you some indication is dig down a foot or so, take your soil sample there, send it off to Texas Plant and Soils Labs and see what all uh, Noe finds in there, and he may be able to give you some uh, additional suggestions about what you can do to counteract that because you're certainly not the only one with that problem. But, you know, everybody takes a soil sample from up next to the surface, but... Uh, Fruit trees' roots are a lot deeper than that, so you want to take your soil sample down where the roots are. And, uh, of course, TPSLs, they're the only people in in the state I would trust to do a a good soil analysis, and they're no more expensive than the guys that don't know what they're doing. But I think that could be very, very educational for you. One of the problems is is we do drip hose. We do this spiral of a bunch of circles. Mm -hmm. So it it, it doesn't saturate the, the whole upper layer so well it all soaks down so that encourages the roots to go deep <laughs> well uh that's that's good and bad both but uh yeah. um uh, like i say i'd probably send no soil sample down there but i would yeah. also increase the azomite increase the lava sand and future plantings i'd i'd do in a you know a raised up area i had an old uh cousin who let's say that uh, aesthetics were not his thing he would just pile up three tires deep and uh, fill that with soil and that's how he planted his fruit trees i think you could come up with a little more attractive system but he certainly yeah. good grew good fruit, fruit trees yeah it, it's 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 just so de- de- it's depressing once they get so big and you know nice it's like all of a sudden it's like oh shoot anyway okay well. I'll let you go, Bob. Okay, thanks for all the advice. <laughs> always, uh, always good, good to talk to you. You have a great Sunday. Right. And let me get a break out of the way, and we'll be back. Start with Thomas. I get to talk about Fanix Nursery and Garden Center. And, of course, you know I thoroughly enjoy Fanix and uh, enjoy talking about them. In fact, I'll probably run by and get in a visit tomorrow with uh, Mark and Mike, just catch up on some things. They're just good people out to give you the best service and the best selection they possibly can. And uh, this has been a challenging year in the nursery business because, of the lack of plant material out there, but Mark and Mike have done a good job of getting their crepe myrtles in. Maybe not quite as many varieties as usual, maybe just 60 instead of 100. Crepe myrtles, uh, though, Phoenix is well stocked on, as they are on the perennial plants that qualify for the water saver rebate from saws. They get their fall vegetables in. They, they've got a great selection of tropicals. They, And more and more, they're, you know, have having a quite a quite a collection of succulents over there which so many people love these days along with some other house plants and things so panics is just it changes every time you go over and it's always a fun place to visit if you're looking for quality mulches compost soils fertilizers good organic stuff well you're going to find that over at panics you're going to find medina products fox farm products you just have a lot of things to make your gardening easier and better. Open seven days a week to serve you. And, of course, they now have the Ego battery, lithium-ion battery-powered equipment, along with Traeger pellet grills. Just lots of fun stuff at Panix these days. Over on Home Green Road, right where they've been for over 80 years, open every day to serve you at Fanix Nursery and Garden Center. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening, and uh, actually I have a couple of open lines. You know, sometimes Sunday mornings start off a little more slowly, and if you've had trouble getting through, uh, it'll be a good time to dial 210-599-5555. We're going to talk to Thomas and Mark, and Thomas is up first. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Bob. Well, good morning, sir. Hey, uh, on a Fanninopolis, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it, Ark and my wife got a, as a gift, and uh, this thing had real... Full of real uh, purple blooms, 
Mm-hmm. Well, they've gone away now. How, how do I get this thing to bloom? Well, it's um, you know, it's if two things I would suggest. It's it's not going to bloom for a few months now if those bloom spikes have dried up. But now, you know, it 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 produces the spikes that come out between the leaves, then have the buds and blooms up and down the spikes. Uh, until that spike actually turns brown, uh, there's a good chance that that spike can branch out. You'll see some little dormant nodes further down below where the blooms were. And frequently, they'll put on a little side branch with some more flowers on it. And that may occur more than once, but eventually that bloom spike is going to turn brown and crispy. And at that point, you just cut it off. Um, it's probably not going to, even though these existing spikes have the potential to perhaps make some more flowers. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. just depends on how strong the plant is. But it's not going to put out new bloom spikes probably until about September or October. When we start getting the first cool weather of the fall, that's typically when Phalaenopsis orchids will initiate new bloom spikes coming out from that central area just up above, you know, in between the leaves up above where the spikes have come out before. But in the meantime, you need to feed it regularly. Something like the Hasturo plant formulation works very well. You need to water thoroughly whenever that medium is dry on the surface. I repot them. I find that the Phalaenopsis are hard to maintain in that sphagnum moss. They come potted in when or come planted in when they uh, when they go to the supermarket or wherever i switch them over to orchid bark and have to water a little bit more often but long term i find they do better the blooms last longer and uh, they tend to have more blooms growing in the bark than they do in that uh, sphagnum moss which most of these things come out of taiwan and that's what they just use uh, as their principal potting medium but i switch them over to an orchid bark but i don't do that until those bloom sites have turned brown and crispy until i'm sure they're f- through blooming for right now this thing is in about uh it's a pretty good pretty good sized plant it's in mm-hmm. about a four inch pot mm-hmm. anyway it's in that it looks like a, uh, a bark Okay, well, if it's in bark, then you're in good shape. Um, it can it can have, I would say it could have 8 or 10 leaves on it. When it gets more than that, you probably would want to move it up to maybe a 6-inch pot rather than a 4-inch pot. But or, Phalaenopsis orchids grow upright. They don't spread out like Cattleyas and Dendrobiums and other orchids do. So they can make a very big plant in a relatively small pot. Now, other types of orchids, we have to increase the pot sizes more regularly, but because this genus of orchids tends to be much more upright growing, it does not have to have such a big pot as some of the others do. So don't don't rush to put it into a bigger pot. It's doesn't need, doesn't really probably need to be repotted for a couple of years. Well, I water it about uh, once a week, and I, I put a, about a teaspoon of uh, has to grow in a quart of water. Is that about right? Um, the how often you water will just depend on the light and the temperature. So I can't really tell you if that's you know too much or, or too often or not often enough. But if the plants are looking good, then you're doing just fine. I like the teaspoon of has to grow you know to a gallon of water. I I think that constant feeding works really really well on this type of orchid. Well, a teaspoon to a quart is that too much? That's a little stronger than you need. I would do. Uh, yeah, I do maybe half a teaspoon per quart if you're going to be feeding every week. Okay, all right. Uh, another thing, Bob, uh, this plant uh, that 
coral honeysuckle. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. Coral honeysuckle is our native honeysuckle. Um, it doesn't uh, it doesn't grow quite as quickly. Uh, doesn't have quite as many flowers at one time as something like the Japanese or Hall's honeysuckles, but uh, the coral honeysuckle is a much better plant. It does not become invasive the way some of the other varieties do. Uh, it's a great plant. Uh, it blooms. It doesn't bloom with a lot of flowers at one time, but it can have flowers off and on all summer long. Mine's in bloom at home right now. It started blooming about April, and uh, by the way, it took uh, that five degree temperature with no problems at all. But it started blooming about April. It'll probably bloom off and on up until about October or so. Um, it, like I say, it's just it's not going to be a solid mass of flowers, and it's not quite as fragrant as uh, as some of the uh, Asian imports are. But it's a good, tough, hardy plant. Uh, uh, I've got the the drip from my AC system goes out in the general area, but I haven't watered my coral honeysuckle in five or six years now, and it gets by just on you know what the ac puts out and uh it, it's just very hardy very tough very good plant like i say it doesn't grow as quickly doesn't grow as densely as the uh asian imported types of honeysuckle do but in my opinion it's a far better plant and uh needs something to grow up on obviously a trellis for a fence or a screen of some sort but uh just a good quality native vine that uh, has very few negatives okay Okay, Bob Walsh, uh, thank you for being there. It's always a pleasure, Thomas. Always good to talk to you, sir. You have a uh, wonderful weekend, and we'll talk again. Uh, Mark, let me get a quick break out of the way here so we don't get behind, and uh, we'll be right back to more phone calls. I get to talk to you for a moment about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, and, of course, you know how I feel about that. I, I just hate to do a job over and over because the job didn't get done right the first time or the people didn't use the right materials. I don't want to have to put a new roof on my home every time we have a severe freeze or every time we have a little bit of hail or all those other excuses that the people with shingle roofs get told about why they have to put a new roof on. And maybe insurance pays for it, maybe not, but it's always a mess. Why do you want to go through that when you can put a quality roof from Southwest Metal Roofing Systems on your home and not have to worry about it for the life of your home? They are that good. The metal is that good. The workmanship is that good. I guess my roof from them is approaching 20 years old now, and I've never called them for the slightest problem with it, even though my roof's complex. Three chimneys, balcony around three sides upstairs, 110-year-old house. Man, they did a beautiful job on that, and it's it looks as good today as the day they installed it. You know, we have one of the roofs on our Shades of Green Nursery. My business partner has a roof on her home. So many friends have had Southwest Metal Roofing System put the roofs on their home, and so many of them take the time to call me back and say thank you. Best roof I've ever had, and it was really, really reasonably priced. If you're tired of replacing your roof, if you're tired of worrying about your roof, or if you're building a new home and you want to only put one roof on it, you just call Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, 210-822-6868. That's 210-822-6868 for Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, let's get back to these phone lines. It's going to be uh, Mark and Ben and Abel, and Mark's up first. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, sir. How you doing? I'm good. How about you today? Pretty good. I had a couple of questions. Um, 
I'm trying to grow. I'm gonna transplant some cherry tomatoes, and okay. I wanna I wanna save the seeds, and I'm I'm worried that I have sun gold, black cherry, and um, just a regular cherry tomato. If, okay. If I plant those too close to each other, would those cross pollinate and thus give me a different kind of seed? They can, um, you know, if if they're just, you know, really pushing up against each other, yeah, you could certainly get some cross-pollination. Uh, you're still probably going to get a good tomato out of it, but it may not look exactly like the parent. Um, folks that we know in the seed production business, just to be 100% sure, uh, they keep their different varieties, uh, you know, 50 to 100 feet apart, but they'll plant, you know, a group of sun goals here, a group of black cherries there, and the thing about tomatoes, I mean, they don't all necessarily have to be in the garden. I know people, myself included, that have grown them in flower beds and things like that. So if you're really intent on, uh, on, on you know, keeping your strain, your seed line, your genetic line pure, uh, you have two choices. One thing you can do is spread them out. The other thing you can do, and this, because, of course, you know, they're like pretty big plants, but you could take uh, some of the floating row cover fabric like this material called insulate. It actually lets enough light through that um, you can you can leave it on plants for an extended period of time. In fact, when we use it for winter protection, we'll sometimes leave it on tropicals all winter long. Um, and you know the other you can take a piece of this and let's say your cages are five feet feet tall. Once that plant gets up to blooming size. Wrap the entire cage, you know, with your insulate product. And uh, eventually the plant's going to get bigger than that, but you're going to get plenty of tomatoes in that first four or five feet of stem. And if you've got it wrapped with this very lightweight fabric, um, you can be sure that the tomatoes will get self-pollinated. Even in a high wind, it's not going to blow the the pollen. It's not going to go through the insulate. And... um, I mean, how many tomatoes do you need? It might be that you only needed to wrap the lower three or four feet of the cage uh, because, you know, that of the first three or four feet on my sun goals, I'll probably get 30, 40 tomatoes on that first three or four feet, and you only need two or three of them uh, to have enough seed to plant again next year. So that's the other option. You can either spread your varieties out or you can uh, wrap those uh, those cages up to the point that you want to be sure that the blooms are self-pollinated. Does that make sense? Oh, yes, sir. That's a great idea. I'm going to try that. And also, um, I had this, uh, with all this rain, I had this bucket of water, um, and I've, I've been meaning to pour it out, but it didn't, and it formed algae. <laughs> can I, can uh-huh. I put that water in the garden, or was that, oh, absolutely. that, that algae be bad? Absolutely. Algae's, uh, you know, algae's just another plant. <laughs> and it yeah. knows good water when it sees it. Uh, rainwater is, is best thing you could put on your plants. Now, um, if you do this in the future intentionally to collect rainwater and use it, put a, a piece of screen wire or something like that over the top of your bucket so that you don't uh, have mosquitoes moving in because you can breed thousands, well, hundreds at least, of mosquitoes in one bucket, and it can make your outdoor activities a lot less fun. But uh, the fact you've got algae in the water is uh, not the slightest reason in the world not to use it on your garden. Okay. And then uh, one last question. Um, I have chickens, and would it be okay to spray... um the Medina in in their chicken coop to maybe break down some of the material in there? Absolutely. Absolutely. You'll want to use, uh, 
I would use, if I'm going to do that, I would use either Medina Plus or Medina Soil Activator, and I would actually add a little extra molasses to it. I'd put, you know, an extra couple of teaspoons of molasses per gallon, you know, of mix that you use to spray around in there because that's going to kick the microbial activity up even more and uh, nothing at all wrong with doing that periodically. Now, that doesn't substitute for cleaning your chicken house out every now and then. It's going gonna, it's gonna to break things down, and it's certainly going to control any odor you have. But uh, chickens, how to put it delicately, chickens poop a lot, and it's a great, great fertilizer for your garden, but uh, you're, you're not going to break it down to the point you're never going to have to clean your chicken coop, uh, but you'll certainly have to clean it less frequently, and you certainly won't have... Uh, the uh, uh, the barnyard or the chicken yard odor that can <laughs> can occur after a relatively short period of time. Anybody that raises chickens knows exactly what I'm talking about. Yes, sir, I understand. Okay, well, that's all I've got, and I appreciate the help. It's always a pleasure. Appreciate the call. You have a good day. Certainly. All right. Uh, yeah, let's go ahead and talk to Ben, and then we'll take a break and then talk to Abel. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. Uh, morning, sir. That's some hackberries that uh, I want to girdle, how much uh-huh. do I have to cut off? Well, what you're doing is uh, you're, you're stripping the bark all the way around the trunk, and you need to get down to the white wood, down to the xylem wood in there, and you need to do an area probably two to three inches long up and down the trunk. Um, you don't really need to or want to cut deeper than that. Um, just, you know, any, any sharp object that you can safely use to do it, uh, whether it's, um, and you know, I, I like short bladed things when I'm doing that kind of work. So I'm going to use a sheetrock knife or something like that, but you just have to, uh, as long as it's, uh, as long as they're young trees and it's that relatively soft bark that you can peel off, that's all you need. Now, if they're bigger trees, you can use a little hand axe, hatchet, whatever, uh, to do it. Um, or if you're really skilled with a chainsaw, you, you, you don't want to cut deeply into the wood, but you could use it to skin the bark up and down. But, uh, most of the ones I imagine you're talking about, you're just going to be cutting through relatively soft bark. So, uh, sheetrock knife's all you need. Uh, these are, Two foot around. Okay, go ahead and get yourself a hatchet. <laughs> and uh, and and like I say, you're not gonna you're not gonna be chopping the tree down, but you're gonna be yeah. cutting the the tissue that you need to cut is gonna be it's about an eighth of an inch thick, maybe a quarter of an inch thick, and it's directly underneath the bark. So okay. once you've skinned that bark off, you need to go down, uh, you know, another like say a quarter to an eighth of an inch below that, getting down to the white wood. You need to expose on something that big. I probably would take about four inches up and down the uh, up and down the trunk off, and then it's just a matter of waiting. Uh, the tree's going to look great. It's uh, you know it doesn't even know you've you've done anything to it. You've cut the tissue though that takes the nutrients from the leaves to the roots, but you haven't done anything about the tissue that takes the water from the roots to the top of the tree, and that's the way you want it. The tree thinks everything's fine, and then all of a sudden its roots run out of stored energy and the tree folds up and dies um as you well know if you just cut it down it's going to sprout out everywhere and a big tree like that's going to sprout off the roots as well as off the trunk so yeah girdling is girdling is the way to go but it's probably going to be a year before that tree dies that's not a problem with me thank you sir (laughs) it's my pleasure thank you for the call man i appreciate it Uh, goodbye
All right, let's get a break here. Let's talk about the tank depot. Talk about collecting uh, rainwater to water those plants. You know, we're so lucky to have the tank depot here because we've got a great source of quality tanks at very, very reasonable prices. We've got people that can deliver those tanks to you and uh, can even give you some help with setting up your rainwater catchment system. You know, reading the other day about the severe drought up in Northern California and Oregon, those poor people, of course, they've really messed up their groundwater and we won't get into that, but there are problems because they can't find enough tanks. Everybody that has well that didn't have a tank suddenly wants a tank so they can store extra water, and they're scrambling around looking for tanks. All you have to do is make it over to the southeast side of San Antonio, and you're going to find a great selection of rainwater catchment tanks, always in stock, always the best quality, always the best prices in many, many, many different styles. Uh, it's not just rainwater tanks, so it might be bait tanks, open top tanks, transfer tanks, tanks for the back of your pickup, chemical storage tanks. If it's a tank, the greatest source I know of for that tank is going to be the Tank Depot. Check them out uh, on weekends. They are closed, so you have to check them out online, but that's easy to do. Tank-Depot.com. Great people, quality products, and the best prices you're going to find. That's the Tank Depot. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on this nice Sunday morning out there. It's going to be Abel and Glenn and Reuben, and Abel is up first. Good morning, Abel. Good morning, Mr. Webster. Uh, I had a couple of questions about my uh, fig tree. Yes, sir. And, uh, of course, it got frozen back when we had that big freeze. <laughs> like everybody's. Uh, I listened to your show, and you recommended just wait to see where the, it started to grow. Well, it did come back. I had Good. Some, I have some tall branches right now or some stems. But I've got a bunch of little ones at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the taller, on the top part of the of the fig tree, I can already have some some figs. Yes, but sir. But at the bottom, I have no growth at all. No no fig buds at all. That's uh, normal. I, that's normal. I don't have it, any room or anything. No, like it's it's totally up to you. If you want to thin it out where you can you know see the figs a little better or whatever, it doesn't hurt anything. It's kind of like cutting your hair. It's nobody nobody but you really should care what you do with it. And uh, it's that's the fig's normal growth habit. It wants to be a bush. It doesn't want to be a tree. And you'll always you'll always get best production from a bush. So you just kind of have to judge. You know, if I had six or eight new growths coming out at the bottom, and I probably do on mine, I'd let them all grow. If I had 25 coming out at the bottom, I'd probably thin out 10 or 15 of them so that it's, uh, you know, not just a dense, dense forest of little growth down there. But you do what pleases you. Your fig's going to grow well, and it's gonna, you're going to have probably, over the next two years, you're going to have more figs than you've ever had before. Yeah, I had two hundred about two hundred and fifty last year. And I've got twenty right now yep. that are showing up. Well, so, if if you've got one of the varieties that uh bears over a long period of time, you will get more, but I can pretty much promise you by next year you're gonna be back into hundreds of figs again. Assuming we don't have another five degree winter and uh I guess we should never make assumptions about weather, but if if past history is any indication, uh, it would be very unusual for us to get two bad winters in a row. So I think you and your fig are both going to be happier over the next year. Okay, this fig is the yellow. Well, it's not. Well, it's about the yellow. It's okay. a very thin skin, but it's very very sweet. So. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, I'll just. I I have. I've been using some Super Thrive, 
and I think it was Hester Grow that I picked up from you. Sure. And, uh, that's it. All right. Well, or, or let me ask you one. Let me ask you one more thing, Abel. Would you like to have more plants than that, or do you have friends telling you they would love to have a pastier fig tree? Mm, I had well, one neighbor ask me for a okay. A well, let me let me tell you what you can do with some of those new growths that are coming out at the base. If you've got one that's say twelve or eighteen inches long or more, you can take a, a, a clothes hanger or something like that and bend it into a U shape and pin that limb down to the ground. Just pin it down to where that limb is on the surface of the soil, put a shovel full of dirt on top of it, and over the rest of the summer and fall, your fig tree will start producing roots down at that point. It'll start putting a bunch of roots down into the ground, and next spring when it starts to come out, you could go in there and cut that stem, you know, back toward the main plant, dig up that little end section that you've got there, should have a good root system on it by then, and you've got another uh, a whole new fig tree to share with a friend or do whatever you like with, and uh, it's very, very easy to do. Like I say, all it takes is a, a low limb, a coat hanger, and a shovel full of dirt on top of it. Okay, now do I have to trim the, the end of it, the one that's going to no. go to the ground? No, uh-uh. Just, 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 it's called layering. And it's the way, you know, back in my grandfather's day, it's the way most shrubs were propagated, is you just pinned a limb to the ground. Sometimes uh, people will skin a little bit of the bark off the bottom to make it root faster, but with figs you don't normally have to do that. Just where it touches the ground and gets covered up, uh, something in it said, oh, well, my, I blew over and I better take root at this point. And you'll just get a whole mass of roots coming out at that point. And uh, then you just cut it free from the mother plant and pot it up or plant it up, whatever you like. It's the uh, easiest way around to make more fig trees. Okay. We can also in the summer. What's that? I'm sorry. We also make more of what we call air layers, where we split uh, trunks higher up, and we do that wrapping them with sphagnum and then with foil or plastic. But where you've got a lot of growth down at the bottom, why to go to that much trouble? Just uh, do your standard layer at ground level. Okay, once I put it under the dirt, can I mulch over it? Sure, absolutely. Okay. Just right, leave that end. Leave leave a few of the leaves exposed out on the end. Don't cover up all the leaves. But mulch all you like, and by next spring, you will have well-rooted little plants. And I've got to go to news. This is KTSA Radio right here in San Antonio, Texas. My pleasure. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, let's uh, get back to gardening here. And uh, Don sent me a list that says we're going to talk to Reuben and Glenn and Alan. And let's don't wait. Let's just keep going. Reuben's next. Good morning, Reuben. Good morning. Good morning, sir. All right. I've got a tree in my front yard that I think it's an ash tree. I think it's like about 25 years and, yeah, Re- uh, Reuben, if you can, if you can get off speakerphone, I can hear you a whole lot better. Um, I got that you have a you have a tree in the front yard, and you think it's an ash tree. Yes. Yeah. Yes. How's that? That's much better. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm a, I'm a truck driver, so that's why. I'm oh, <laughs> I understand. Okay. So this tree is uh, uh the branches, the big stock has grown mm-hmm. is, is big. But the yeah. branches on the stock are where the buds normally come out. Are I haven't grown anything since the freeze. Yeah, and yeah. I do. I do have some, you know, sprouts of greenery coming out on it. Um, you know, but yeah. that's just 
So I'm thinking of cutting it all down because I think it's lived its life. I'm I'm sorry to say that I agree with you. I've got some tallow trees that are the same way, and they would struggle along. You would get some green. They'd they'd have growth here and there probably for another three to five years, but it's not going to go back to being the big old majestic tree that it was. And, uh, um, and, you know, those dead limbs up high aren't going to come out green. They're going to start to deteriorate. First thing you know, they're going to come crashing down, hopefully not on your truck or on your house or anything but um i'm with you i'm seeing that on ash trees i'm seeing it on tallows i'm seeing it on a couple of species of elms and uh it's time for chainsaw on a new tree and um i I hate to say that about any tree that's half alive but it's just never going to come back to be looking good again and i i would replace it if it were mine yeah, I was thinking of that too. I would just, you know, I'm just gonna leave the big limb so I can have like a piñata for my granddaughter's uh, birthday <laughs> stuff. <laughs> well, you know, cut cut them back. You know, leave those big limbs maybe five feet long, but don't leave them fifteen feet long because you don't want them to break and come crashing down on your granddaughter or anybody else. So, uh, trim it yeah, down. Yeah, and the big, the big ones. The big, I know yeah. it's, it's like the ones that aren't have got no leaves on it. Yeah. The, yeah. Those are branches. But then sure. I have the big stock and then the bigger stock. Yeah. You know. So, well, just yeah, just trim it back, you know, to where you've got where you've got enough limb to hang that pinata from and <laughs> my little yeah. sister lives in Mexico and I I've sure seen some good pinata parties down in uh, her part of the world, but uh no, it's it's over time that ash tree is going to be a uh, uh, a dangerous thing because the limbs will start yeah. to rot and fall, and you're you're yeah. preemptively taking a very important thing there, and it's it's a good thing to get done. And it was a good shaded tree in the front yard when the sun set west. You know, it was yeah. really oh well. Plant a plant a Mexican I sycamore. Question. I got one more one more okay. question. Yes, sir. I got some orange trees. I got a, a short, probably about four feet orange tree that lived okay. in the freeze. Believe it or not, very, it really very lived. Good. Yeah. And, but the lemon tree didn't make it. It was a short, like, one-year-old tree branch. Sure. And I've got a stock coming out of that, but starting from the root. Yep. So I'm like, whoa, maybe it's, it's still got life. Well, what the... What I'm trying to get is that the bugs, I just don't like to, to see the bugs. What do I use to keep bugs away from the, the leaves of that? Well, the main thing that's going to get after the leaves on your caterpillar or on your uh, fruit, on your citrus trees, is going to be caterpillars. There's a non-toxic spray that's called BT, stands for Bacillus thuringiensis, but uh, BT is totally safe for people and pets, but it's very, very bad for caterpillars. And that's going to be the principal thing that eats on the foliage, you know, of a citrus tree. Now, one of the caterpillars makes a beautiful butterfly, so I sometimes let them eat some of it. But if the eating gets to be excessive, BT will totally get it under control. But uh, let me tell you the good news and the bad news. Uh, your your orange is probably what we call a satsuma. They are much more cold-hardy than lemons. And uh, uh, it's going to just go on growing and producing good oranges for you uh you know, for the future, you just get more and more and more fruit from it. Unfortunately, yeah. on your lemon tree, that sprout from the base may be coming out of the rootstock rather than from the grafted right. portion because the lemons, uh, if um, 
you know, the, the lemon itself is not as cold hardy as the rootstock that it's growing on. And I'm concerned that that sprout, that the, that the lemon part of the tree is, has died from the cold. And all you've got is a rootstock coming out. You'll know that pretty soon because you'll start seeing great big thorns up and down and it all. And you have two choices. You can either look for a new lemon tree, which is really hard to find right now because everybody's yeah. looking for lemon trees. Or you can regraft it. Uh, you sound like a pretty, pretty capable guy. And uh, you can go on the Internet and learn how to you know, graft citrus really very easily. And then you find somebody else that has a lemon tree or a lime tree or another orange orange tree and you can that sprout that's coming up you can regraft that and put the variety of citrus that you want now after that of course you have to cut off any limbs that come out below that point but uh citrus real hard to come by all the citrus sold in texas has to be grown in texas we only have two big citrus growers in the state and they can't keep up so maybe a while before you can find a new lemon tree but if you know anyone that has one um, again, you could uh, take a small cutting off their tree, graft it onto your rootstock, and you're back in business again. Okay. Yeah, my neighbor's got a little lime tree there that's been sure. hiding. It's really well. Really, here's here's the fun here's the fun thing. If you wanted to, with that growth coming out. Um, you could do what uh, in the industry they call it a fruit cocktail tree. You could leave like three limbs on that, and you could graft a lemon onto one. You could graft a lime onto the other, and you could graft an orange onto the third one. And you'd be the uh, <laughs> you'd be the the champion in that granddaughter's eyes. You know, my granddad's got one tree with three different kinds of fruit on it, so yeah. it could be a fun thing to do as well. Okay, yeah, that'll work for me. Yeah, I just need to know about that tree before I start cutting it tomorrow. Well, you go to work on that and uh, wear and that hard hat and do it safely. I hope the weathermen are right. They're saying that's a good possibility, but if the lightning storm comes up, you get down out of that tree. Oh, yeah, and away from the chainsaw. <laughs> uh, you got it. You got it. All right, thank you. You're certainly welcome, Ruben. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, it's Glenn's turn next. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Uh, I've got three three questions. One, okay. I've got a neighbor. I've got four foot chain link fence, and the neighbor next door put up a wood fence. So I got all the growth that's between the wood fence and my chain link. And somebody told me that I could use uh, uh, use cooking oil to uh, douse the area and kill all the vegetation and trees coming up. Uh, would that also contaminate the soil? Well, yes and no. It's uh, any time you do anything like that, um, you're going to cause some contamination, and sometimes you have to worry about it. Uh, you know, spreading beyond where you want it. Now, if you follow it up with a little bit of molasses or um, some has to grow or not has to grow, but some Medina soil activator with a little bit of molasses in it, you will totally break down. Uh, that oil, in fact, it turns it into a fertilizer of sorts. So you can, uh, you know, you can certainly clean it up, but that's always going to be a, a problem point. Um, if you're, if there's any way to do so, that's one place that, um, and I, I wish your neighbor had been thoughtful enough to do this before, you know, they put the boards on that fence. This is one place you, they should have put down some weed block or something like that 
to keep all those blasted little hackberries and everything from coming up between the fences because that's always going to be an issue. If you want to use oil of any sort or even, you know, some people use diesel to kill that stuff out, just remember if uh, if your neighbor planted something right on the back side of that wooden fence, uh, you could cause a problem there. So. You want to be <laughs> you want you want to be a little sensible in how you do this, but uh, the best way to do it is just to smother what's underneath it. Um, I, my choice would probably be to cut down what's there and maybe even take something like old shingles. Old shingles are a great weed block, and uh, you could put a row maybe two shingles deep. Uh, just try to slide it underneath the chain link all the way over to his wood fence and uh, uh, butt it up tightly against that. And that's going to not only kill whatever's there, but it's going to work for you know a long time in the future to keep other things from coming back or at least keep a minimum number of things coming back and it'll be a whole lot more manageable. Okay. Number number two, I'm, uh, I walk over to a friend's house and I've got several really beautiful uh, St. Augustine yards I walk past, but they've got runners that are coming across the sidewalk and curb. Uh-huh. Sure. Can you cut cut those and plant those? Absolutely, absolutely. You have to. You'll have to water them daily, and it would be best. You know, if you could wait till it cools off a little bit. By that time, everybody may have, you know, gone and trimmed all that stuff off and thrown in the compost pile. But, uh, yeah, what you want to do is uh, keep your cutting your runners not too long, maybe six or eight inches. You want to take maybe the back three inches or two inches at least, put soil over the top of that. And you keep it uh, well watered and it'll take off and grow and... uh uh, you can use it to fill in dead spots or whatever, but you, you've got to, you know, water it daily, not the whole yard, but where you're doing this, maybe even twice a day until it starts getting its roots down. But uh, that's the way my grandmother did it, and it worked well for her. Most people aren't, um, you know, inspired to get out and do that much work. They just want to go out and buy what somebody else has already grown. But uh, I'll tell you what, I've replanted plenty of St. Augustine runners, and I'll bet you 99% of them rooted and grew. Fantastic. Last question. I've got a eight, nine-year-old plum tree that has yet to ever produce. It froze back. We cut it back by at least a third, if not half. And it's coming out by gangbusters. I mean, it's really big, green, and beautiful. But no buds have never received one fruit off of it. Okay. And all this growth that's coming out is up to the top of the tree, not down at the base, right? Yes, sir. Okay, uh, and it's never bloomed, or it's never never produced fruit, or both. Both. Okay, uh, plum trees. There are there are a handful of varieties that do well here. It could just be a northern plum tree that our winters just aren't chilly enough to put it into proper dormancy to get it to bloom. More commonly, though, plums require more pruning, more thinning out. You don't go through and just cut the whole tree back. You go through and selectively go up and down the trunk, up and down the limbs every winter, every January, December, January, early February. Go up and down the limbs and cut off every other little branch that's trying to come out. This thinning out done every year is what will get your plum tree blooming and which will give you your your best production and it'll also make the tree live longer now if this tree has never had plums on it uh is this a tree that you bought or was it there when you moved onto your property where did this tree come from 
my wife bought it. I don't remember. Where, I, I don't know if she got it from you or from, uh, you know, maybe Lowe's. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, we don't. We, about eight years ago. Yeah, we we send people over to Phoenix or somewhere. <laughs> she, she didn't get them from us because we don't do plum trees. We do a lot of other things. But the here here's the thing I was getting to, that if that tree was grown from a seed rather than having been grafted, uh, it takes things, you know, six or eight years to mature when you grow from a seed. Sometimes it's a monstrous plant before it's physiologically mature enough to reproduce. It's just like, you know, I may have a bull calf that weighs 1,100 pounds, but he can't do his job with the heifers until he matures. And, uh, and a fruit tree is the same way. Uh, that's why most fruit trees are grafted, and you can take mature graft wood, put it onto a rootstock, and it's capable of producing the first year because that, that wood is already mature. So um, I tell you, I would... This winter, I would go through and I would thin that new growth out. Uh, if it doesn't produce flowers for you next spring, I'm going to assume it's a bad variety for this area. Uh, and call me before you go out, and uh, I'll tell you which varieties to get. It's going to be Santa Rosa. It's going to be Bruce. It's going to be Methley. Uh, but there are a lot of plums that will do well here. But no matter what variety you get, if you get the ones that will produce here, you do need to thin them out to the tune of about 50 to 60% every winter to get to the bloom and produce good fruit the next spring. I understand, sir. I thank you for your time. May you have a safe and blessed day. You do likewise. Good to talk to you, Glenn, and I thank you. All right, uh, let's get a break out of the way here, and Alan will be next. Let's see. I get to talk about Cedar Eater of Texas, and I just love talking about them. I appreciate uh, those good people and all they've done because, hey, you know, they've, they've just saved a lot of property in the Hill Country in a couple of different ways. Number one, they've made the property better by getting rid of the cedar, and number two, they've done it in an environmentally friendly fashion where somebody else might have gone in with a bulldozer or a bobcat and pushed everything over and then burned it. That's not how the cedar eater works. Cedar eater has a big machine that cuts the cedar off at ground level, which kills it effectively, and then grinds it into a nice mulch. You get a great mulch. There's no bulldozing, no burning, and cedar eater can do acres and acres in a single day. And they work right around the trees you want to save. If it's real tight up around your oaks and cherries and things like that, um, they send in a hand-clearing crew that cuts the cedar, drags it out in the open, and that bigger machine just turns it into a great mulch. They even have a bigger machine they can use to take down trees that might have died in the cold or might have died of oak wilt. And by the way, there's no danger of spreading oak wilt that way. But they get the tree down safely, turn it into mulch before it has a chance to fall on your fence or your house. Uh, <laughs> it's No, they do more work out in the fields than they do up in, you know, in a residential area. But believe me, there are plenty of places that... Uh, falling tree can certainly take out a fence and it certainly is good to have it taken down before it gets to that point if you're in that situation well tell me you want to ask about the wilt eater they also have a machine called a grubber that rips mesquite out of the ground roots and all get the idea they're just a lot of great services from one great company that's been doing this for years and years it's called the cedar eater of texas they have a north texas and a south texas location you get to them both with the same phone number, 745-2743. That's 210-745-2743 for the Cedar Eater of Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. It's going to be Alan and Robert and Beverly, my next three callers, and Alan's up first. Good morning, Alan. 
Good morning. How you morning, doing? Morning, sir. Ah, it's another beautiful day out there. Got my got my exercise with a semi full of plants from Southern California at uh, seven o'clock this morning. So I'm having fun sitting here and looking out at the day right now. Uh, we're about to start harvesting, multiplying onions here shortly. Oh yes, out. sir. Very good. Um, well, we got a multiplying onion farm in Skidmore, and okay. I'm trying to figure out how to control weeds because it's going exponential right now and i'm going from a half acre to five acres and there's no way i can do that with a hoe and um where are you and what kind of soil do you have we got sandy loams we got some black gumbo but i'm working on that uh with organic material working it up and uh we're probably about an hour south of y'all in skidmore okay um and do you you're multiplying onions uh you're using little transplants you're not trying to grow them from seed is that correct yes sir i don't even believe these things make a viable seed they'll yep, flower yep. but they don't make any seed yeah there's so some been, of the I've seed. Been splitting them for six years and <laughs> it's getting bigger and bigger and now it's getting way over i can't really handle the weeds you know i've been going all 100 percent organic medina growing green out there sure. with the hoe weeding i can cultivate in between the rows but as far as actual rows i can't keep the weeds out and that's that yeah that that's going to be an ongoing issue because uh you know even even the non-organic things are going to be um you know damaging to to your multiplying onions and i'm i don't know if you're certified organic or not the uh, you know the, there's no way you're ever going to eliminate a hundred percent of the weeds probably what you may do is use some sort of a fabric some sort of a mesh material you don't want to use like a heavy duty weed block but uh it's kind of like they do strawberries in california they actually put a plastic mulch uh, down, you know, along their rows, and then they kind of plant through it. But um, the there there three there are three things you can do. You know, you can let the weeds sprout and kill them. Uh, you can use a mulch to suppress them. Uh, you can try to use a pre-emergent to kill the seedlings as they emerge. And you know, each of those things has its drawbacks. The, the pre-emergents very definitely will. Uh, keep you from getting a good as good a root system on your on your big plants and um, uh, again I I don't want to see you use a real thick dense weed block because that's not going to let the soil breathe properly but uh, that's that's probably going to be cost wise labor wise uh, you're just basically gonna you're gonna plants you're multiplying onions you're just going to lay a strip of this down along either side and that's going to get rid of 95 percent of the weeds the other five percent you're going to pull you're going to chop uh the thing that i'd be real sure of is that you get rid of any of your perennial grasses any of your perennial weeds because those are going to be your big problems you're always going to have some annual weeds that are going to blow in from seed but those tend to not have as dense a root system and you eliminate them one time and they're gone so uh, there's there's nothing magic that's going to you know totally eliminate every weed you have out there but i suspect that you're going to wind up doing it either with a good mulch uh, and that mulch, like I say, that could be, uh, you know, some sort of coarse ground organic material or that could be an actual fabric that you put down on the surface of the ground. 
but um, it's there's there's nothing that does it a hundred percent. But uh, that's that's one of your best bets. Now, the other thing, if you didn't mind walking uh, those rows every now and then, but you don't want to, you know, go along. Um, you know, actually bending and pulling and chopping and things like that. The other thing you can do is get a backpack sprayer that'll hold maybe up to three gallons of spray, and you can make that vinegar and orange oil mix. And uh, I do this in my own garden, my garden anywhere near that big. But I'll walk along with a piece of cardboard, and I will simply hold that cardboard up against my onions, let's say, or, you know, my tomato plants or my pepper plants. And then I can spray that vinegar and orange oil all the way up to the plant. But as long as I keep it off the foliage of the plant that I want to protect, it's not going to do any damage. But that allows me to spray and kill weeds that are up to within an inch of the plant. But it still means I've got to, you know, walk along there and do that by hand. And, uh, um, I, you know, that's if if you did, you know, one row a day and then started over, you'd, you'd probably cover the whole area, you know, over about a two-week period. And that would give you real good suppression with uh, uh, no labor other than just walking along. You want a good sprayer. You want one of these backpack sprayers so you're just carrying your 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 block whether it's a piece of cardboard piece of plexiglass uh whatever carrying that in one hand you've got your spray wand in the other and you're just walking along just walking down the row spraying every weed that comes up without hurting your onions uh and you're using something that's not absorbed through the roots as long as you keep it off the foliage um it's going to be you know you can achieve what you want to do without hurting your plants that's what i would do but if uh if you don't have you know, somebody that can walk those rows, um, then you're going to end up putting some kind of mulch down. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I've, I've done the orange orange uh, oil and the, the vinegar before. It seemed to work pretty good. Um, yeah, oh, it, it works really well, but, I mean, you're just, you're, you're talking and, uh, you know, I've got five-acre pastures or paddocks on my ranch, and, you know, you, you, you're not going to do the whole thing in a day, or you're sure not going to enjoy doing it. But uh, in my own garden, um, I've cut back on the size just because uh, the nursery seems to demand more and more of my time and a few other activities I'm involved in. But when I'm weeding, I'll try to do like two rows of my garden a day, and that way I'm making it through the whole garden at least once a week, and I'm getting, keeping the weeds well under control, and I'm, you know, I'm doing that for 20 minutes a day. In your case, it's probably going to take uh, somebody spending an hour a day, you know, to do one or two rows, but as you're working your way across, and let's say you have, uh, let's say you have 20 rows, and you're doing two rows a day, then every 10 days you've made it through your whole field, and as uh, long as you don't let it get ahead of you, you can totally suppress your weeds that way. And, of course, every every year it gets easier because the only weed seeds you have sprout are going to be the ones blowing in. It's not you've got weeds there dropping seeds constantly, which is uh, which is the biggest problem. But um, it's not taking all the work out of it, but that's probably how I would address it. And if it's your profession, you're going to expect to spend an hour or two a day doing something in there. Yes, sir. I'm on, I work the pipeline, and that's yep. hopefully I can get out of that, and I plan on going to this as my profession. <laughs> but I'm in between that phase of I still got to go to work, but I still got to go home and build the onion field. So, And you don't have three teenage sons at home that uh, will get out and do the work for you, but... Uh um, you know, it's, uh, I don't know your situation, but you might find somebody around. You might find, uh, 
I, I know growing up in my my family's my grandparents and aunts and uncles florist business when we need needed strong young men to help my uh, uncle would go to the football coach at high school nearby that was a friend of his the coach always knew the kids that needed to make a little bit of money and needed some good exercise and we got some of the nicest young men uh, to do some of the weeding and some of just the laborious work around my granddad's house and things like that so you may you might be able to find somebody that could take an interest in it and we give you some help while you're in that transition phase that was my uh I was been suggested that by a couple of people, actually. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go talk to the coach or the FFA it's, director. Maybe they got some people in the yeah. FFA that want to. You know, being in the country, you're a lot better off than kids in the city that just want to sit behind the computer. There are good ones out there, but you know, and when I was growing up, everybody worked except for that ten percent that were lazy bums. Nowadays, <laughs> the, the number of people willing to get out and work is diminished. But thank God they're still out there. They're they're our future. Yes, sir. I got one more quick question. I've been using yes, sir. growing green once a month, and my ridge yep. can't handle that anymore. Like my arms are going out on me sprinkling because I do it direct to the rows. Um, uh-huh. I was going to go to liquid. I bought a boom sprayer, and I mean, is there a good combination or a regimen that I could do? Because you know, there's a Medina growing green that has to grow the seaweed. Sure. Uh, yeah, molasses. Uh, you could. Yeah, if I were doing it, I'd probably use has to grow uh, has to grow plant. Uh, you can buy that from Stewart in uh, you know ninety six gallon carboys. It gets a lot less expensive. I mean, for your purposes, maybe five gallon jugs would be big enough. But you don't want to be out there buying the little jugs because there's too much money in packaging. But uh, he can get it to you, you know, in in bigger sizes, and it's a great product. Um, I do like. You know, the, the growing green, I like the dry granular, and once again, there, um, there's, there's a little hopper that literally it goes around your neck, hangs down in front of you. It holds probably five pounds of fertilizer, and it's got a crank on the side, and you just walk down the road turning that crank with one hand, and it's certainly easier on the wrists, but that's, uh, if you can't run a spreader of some sort down through there, uh, that's one of the one of the easiest ways. It's not quite as exacting as putting it right directly at the base of every plant, but at least it concentrates your fertilizer within what the root zone of that plant's going to be, and uh, uh, it takes a lot of the labor out of it, but still lets you use a granular product like that. Okay. What do you, what do you how do you feel about Epsom salt uh, liquefied in a boom sprayer every so often? You know, Epsom salts don't do a lot directly for the plant, but they rebalance the calcium and magnesium in the soil, which is what helps your plants, be it onions or anything else, uh, helps, you know, them take the nutrient material up. I don't, I don't have the experience, and your type of soil is very definitely different from mine. Epsom salts are great on some plants. I mean, they're great on tomatoes to stop blossom end rot. They're great on roses. Whether they will work with your soil or not, uh, I don't know. Again, I uh, might put in a call to a fellow named Noe Garcia, who's uh, who runs the Texas Plant and Soils Labs down in Edinburgh. Uh, Noe could probably answer that question better than I can. I would send him a, probably a soil sample once a year. His price is super reasonable, and he can tell you if he sees anything getting out of balance in your soil that you need to take care of. And uh, 
Um, I, I, that would be 15, 20 bucks well spent every year to get a good soil test. And, uh, I'd ask him. He knows, uh, and of course you'd call the folks over at Dixondale Farms that are the biggest onion growers in Texas and, uh, nice people. I'm sure that they would happily talk to you. Uh, I mean, these people can sell everything they can grow. They're not going to treat you as competition. And, uh, chances are they'll happily tell you if they think Epsom salts, uh, either dry or granular would benefit your operation. Yes, sir. They might even help you market your crop. Yeah, I'm, I'm finding out now why they were kind of hard to find. Amen to that. There, there's a market open for it because yep. you, know, you don't find them everywhere anymore like when I was a kid. Oh, listen, if you've got somebody who wants to make the the round of the farmer's markets, uh, you'll do quite well with them. Yes, sir. All right. Well, I appreciate your help. And, uh, always a pleasure good luck with it and uh, uh, let me know if you have more questions I'll always do my best to help you yes sir will do thanks so much thank you, thank you sir goodbye alright better get a break out of the way here then it'll be Robert and Beverly but I get to talk about Dr. Williamson Dr. Mark Williamson's one of the nicest men I have ever met one of these quietly competent professionals just an incredibly well-trained competent dentist but he's not the corporate dentist. He's not the modern, quote, dental office where, you know, you get X number of minutes with the dentist and the hygienist does half the work and uh, then they farm you out to some specialist somewhere if it's anything more than just a simple filling or whitening. Dr. Mark Williamson can take care of virtually any issue you have right there in his office. Out on Cherry Ridge is real easy to find and a real, real friendly place with lots and lots of parking. But uh, Dr. Williamson is just a totally different from today's young dentist coming out of dental school. Dr. Williamson is very, very experienced. He's broadly trained. He can take care of all sorts of problems involving oral, involving oral surgery or implants, things like that, right there in his office. And he will take the time to know you. He will take the time it takes to keep your mouth in absolutely top condition. You just uh, you can't appreciate what I'm telling you until you've been and seen and met Dr. Williamson and the staff out there. But if you are looking for a good dentist that you can trust, a man who will be your friend as well as your dentist, and a man who's not going to send you out to some specialist somewhere for a lot of money every time you have an issue that's uh, maybe a little more complex. And, uh, you know, and, and lots of folks, uh, as as they age, have uh, more complex dental issues. Dr. Williamson is just somebody I think you would really enjoy knowing. Why don't you find out? Why don't you give his, uh, his office a call? Um, they're just, Dr. Williamson and Associates, you're just going to get the best dental care that you're going to find anywhere around, and you're actually going to enjoy the experience. That's Dr. Mark Williamson and Associates, 341-2569. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, we do have a couple of open lines. It's opened up a little bit. If you've been getting a busy signal, you know the number. And uh, let's see, looks like we're going to talk next to Robert and Beverly. And Robert's up first. Good morning, Robert. Good morning. Are you there, Robert? Good morning, sir. Can you hear me? I hear you loud and clear. Okay. Um, I've got a silverleaf maple uh planted in my backyard i had one in my front yard and i ended up petting it down because it was getting a lot of the uh the heat so right. that 
they were planted about 29 years ago, and I've got <laughs> in my backyard still, and it was doing pretty good up until a couple years ago. Um, the leaves uh, started turning a little bit yellow, and some of the mm-hmm. bigger branches started uh, breaking off from the top. Luckily, nothing hit my house. It just kind of fell sure. down and, and gently landed on my uh, my deck. So I managed to get them you know, cleaned up and cleared out. But I have some surviving limbs that are pretty high. This thing's almost 30 feet tall, maybe taller. And I've, I've That's un- have you ever seen one this big? And they're like, no. Yeah, right. Yeah, most of them don't don't live that long or do that well. They're just not a real good tree for this area. You know, you you will extend its life um, doing things like uh, putting some azomite around it, putting fertilizer around it regularly. But uh, there's no other way to put it than just to say you've got an old tree, you've got an elderly tree, and it's never going to have the vigor. It's never going to be that you know, real pretty tree that tempted you, you know, 20 years ago to to plant it out there. This is a tree that uh, the bigger it gets, the further its roots get down into the really poor layers of subsoil, the harder it's going to be to keep it looking nice. So, uh, you know, fertilizer and deep watering periodically are going to help. But I can tell you from experience that once these things start going down, you're never really going to turn it around. You've gotten, uh, you've gotten, a, you've gotten far more years of, uh, of of growth and service out of this plant than you would normally expect with the silver maple. And uh, I, I just, I don't know any other way to tell you. Just this tree is getting pretty close to the end of its productive life. So trim the dead out of it, fertilize, a little extra green sand, things like that if you want to keep it for a while. But uh, you're not going to make a young tree out of it, and I'd sure be thinking about what you want to plant out there when this thing's gone. Well, I understand. And to be clear, I did not plant this. It was here when I bought the house. Oh, I understand that. You you sound smarter than that. <laughs> but I, I'm really amazed. I can't say that I've ever seen a silver maple in this area live that long. So you or somebody has taken really good care of it, and you must have reasonably good soil there, or uh, you wouldn't have made it half that long with that tree. Well, I think what, what made it do so well is there's a... a um, an oak uh, that kind of shielded it from at least half of the, the, the heat from the yes, sun. So yeah. It's just got the second half of the heat of the day, so I think that's why it did so well. It had a right. big uh, oak, you know, like shading it part of it, uh, you know, during the, the daylight hours. Um, well, that's part of it, but you you or somebody has also given that tree excellent care when we've had you know, extra droughty times, and obviously it's gotten some new, good nutrition along the way. So, uh, yeah, somebody's done a good job with it, and I'm sure that oak helped. I wanted to mention something also. Oh, well, before I change subject, should I trim those long uh, limbs off before they fall, and can I top it, and will it do anything if I top it or just take it down? Yeah. It, it'll ruin it to top it. It'll just produce little bird's nests of growth that'll never be attractive again. Any any limb that is dead or, you know, is just getting relatively leafless, yeah, I would take them down proactively. Uh, and anything that's dead, I'd get it down as soon as you possibly can. Uh, and, of course, do it, uh, you know, in several sections. If you've got a 12-foot-long limb that needs to come off, you know, cut it back four feet at a time. If you start, if you try to 
do it all at once. It's probably going to break and fall and split bark off down the trunk and could be a bit of a hazard, but just uh, using your pole saw or whatever, you know, start out toward the tim, toward the end of it and just like every four feet come back. When you get back to the main limb or to the trunk, you want to cut it. You want to leave maybe three-eighths of an inch. We call it the branch collar. If you look very carefully, you'll see it's like a little different ring of cells where that limb came out. You want to cut just beyond that so that the tree can seal that wound off effectively. Okay. Uh, I wanted to mention something about Super Thrive, too. You were talking about that earlier? Yes, sir. I have a bottle that's about five or six years old, and I compared it to a box that I just bought. And mm-hmm. uh, you, you are correct. Um, that They haven't added stuff to it. I think what he saw was down at the bottom, it's, it talks about bare root soaking. and that uh, okay. Ah, uh, you're probably exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, most people, you know, don't see the box. They they see the the bottle with that hard to read fine print on it. If you ever see see the box that it's shipped in, and I I don't know if they still do, but I'm uh, when I first came became acquainted with the product product, and the box was funny. Uh, it would say report Mr. Nurserman report any insult to your intelligence by products claiming to be like Super Thrive or as good as Super Thrive, but having having met the man, I can't say I really knew him, but having met the very strange old man named Dr. Thompson that invented this stuff, I, I would believe almost anything that you saw on the box or on the label. So, But it's a great product. I mean, it has come, it has brought life back to things that I thought had no chance at all. So uh, it's a product that I do like, but you just have to take the instructions with a grain of salt. Um, what's the longevity of the bottle? Because, like I said, I've had it five years, and I put a little hole in the top, and I just bit out. Yeah, I uh, I just try to protect it from extreme heat. Uh, it doesn't have any life in it. There's nothing living in it, and it's not an active chemical. So, um, if you can, you know, if you protect it from extreme heat, I should probably stay good for twenty years. Okay, yeah, well, I've kept it in the house like 72 to 80 degrees somewhere yeah, in there. Yeah, perfect. Old. Perfect. Okay, cool. okay, one more question, sir. Um, I've got the yellow grass, which a lot of people have these days. Right. And I took a couple blades to Rainbow Gardens, and the guy looked at it, and he says, oh, you've got fungus. So he gave me some F-stop, and I put okay. that on a little over two weeks ago, and it seems to be helping a little bit, but it's not like knocking it out. And he said I might need to put uh, enough. This stuff is thirty dollars a bag, and you know yeah. my yard took like one bag, so yeah. another another thirty dollars. So that's sixty dollars, you know, right there. So should yeah. I do that, or can I try something else that maybe I'll knock it out better? Well, I I think your for fungal control, good old whole ground cornmeal is better than any synthetic chemical that I've ever seen. And uh, but fun fungus problems in the middle of the summer are not common. There is something called take all patch, but it's not going to be yellow. It's going to be dead grass. Um, your your yellowing is more likely, in my opinion, having not seen your grass, is probably due to having had a relatively wet spring. Uh, plants recovering from the severe freeze in February have used up a lot more of the nutrients. Uh, yellowing is typically a deficiency of either iron, zinc, or nitrogen. Um, I would feed it with a you know a good fertilizer, Medina Grow and Green, um, Maestro Grows uh, Texas Tea, 
Um, the folks at Nature's Creation uh, make um, uh, make a good product they call premium lawn food. I would, you know, I would tend to feed it. I would, uh, this fall, I would give it a top dressing. After it cools off, I'd top dress it with some good compost, and you should be set to go. I, I don't think I'd be putting any more synthetic fungicide on it. I doubt if you need to. Well, he saw some brown spots on the yellow. I put some a little sample, and he said there's sure. brown spots or fungus. That's what well, said. they could be. Again, whole ground cornmeal is going to do a better job of stopping that. And uh, the fungus is probably not to a level that's really causing a lot of problem. If it is, uh, I wouldn't buy any more expensive synthetic fungicide. I go to a feed store or somewhere that you can buy a cheap uh, bag of whole ground cornmeal. Put that out. You can, and if you want to stretch it even further, uh, you know, put a couple of cups in a five-gallon bucket of water, soak it overnight, and then use that to pour on or spray on or whatever. That will do as good or better a job of stopping fungus than any more expensive stuff you can buy out there. Okay, so I live north of the airport. Where would be the closest place to get the whole grain cornmeal? Um, well, probably one of the feed stores out 281. Uh, good nurseries will have it uh, at a slightly higher price. If you just need a small amount, you probably get it at HEB under uh, the name of uh, Stone Ground Cornmeal. But uh, pretty much, uh, pretty much any feed store or farm and ranch store is almost certainly going to have uh, whole ground cornmeal. Um, and, you know, for just a few dollars a bag. It's not the cornmeal that's the magic. Cornmeal grows a beneficial fungus called trichoderma, and the trichoderma is what knocks out your damaging fungi. It leaves top oak wilt. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. You're very knowledgeable. I appreciate the info. Uh, I've been there and done that. <laughs> I'm always happy to help, Robert. Appreciate the call, sir. You have a good Sunday. Thank you. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. It's going to be Beverly and Robert and Cindy in that order. And uh, we've got time for at least one more before the news break. So good morning, Beverly. Uh, hello. Uh, thank Hi there. you. I have actually three questions, but are, they're about the same thing. Okay. I called you. I called you previously about having an explosion of the pokeweed mm-hmm. in an area, and you mentioned that it needed to be grubbed out, right? Not not just cut off because it would come back from the root. Yes. Well, I can cut the plants off. Um, basically, I'm old and disabled, and the the trees or the the weeds occur on hilly, rocky, caliche soil. Some of them, mm-hmm. right? And some of them are in an old feedlot, and I can pull the root out. Uh-huh. But, the one, but the others, there's no way I can pull them out. And it's really difficult for me to grub them out. And I wondered, is there anything, like after I cut the plant off, that I could put just around the roots real carefully that would kill it and not harm, like, oak trees and cedar trees that are in the area? And some of these things are growing under the oak and seed trees. And sure. They're sick. Actually, strong vinegar, uh, especially with a little orange oil in it, is probably going to do better than just about anything else, strong you know, that you could use. Uh, it, 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 probably 20, 20%. 
You can try the 9% from the grocery store. It's going to be sold as pickling vinegar. But if that doesn't do it, uh, try a nursery or feed store and get the 20%. It's just substantially more expensive. So try the 9% first. How what would you're you gonna mix f- it with the orange oil, like 50-50? Oh, no, no, no. You put, uh, like, to a gallon of vinegar, uh, you put, like, two ounces of orange oil. It, it only okay. takes a, a small, relatively small amount. And if you add just, you know, a teaspoon or two of molasses to it, it'll make it even better. But um, that's what I would do. The other thing is, you know, as these things sprout in the spring, you can go out and just spray that vinegar and orange oil, and it will kill them completely. You won't have to cut them off. When we, when we let them grow, you know, through a season and on into the hot, dry time of year when it's really hard to kill anything by spraying, it, it gets a lot tougher. But uh, most of these little seedlings are going to be sprouting up in March and April, and you could go through with a simple little sprayer and just you're not trying to soak the soil you're just spraying the top of the plant and they'll be dead in 15 minutes it's the old tough plants that are going to be the harder ones to get rid of like you say um, a simple little sprayer like a little hand sprayer you would use in the house or you could do that or you could do that or if you're able and um, I, I think you probably would be uh, you can get a little uh, half gallon it's like a little sprayer that has a wand on it and it's got a handle on it so you just mix up a half gallon and then they also make a one gallon when it's just slightly heavier but that, that half gallon sprayer doesn't weigh hardly anything and you just mix it up and in my case, I'd have the sprayer in my, or the, the bottle in my right hand, since I'm left-handed. I've got the little spray wand in my left hand, and, you know, in five minutes, I can spray 50 or more weeds coming up. And uh, that would knock, that would, doing a little bit of that early in the spring would sure save you a lot of work later in the year. Well, is the vinegar at that level, is it, like, if you have a little wind and it comes back on you, is it toxic to me? Oh, you wouldn't want to breathe a lot of it, but uh, no, at 20% it's not bad. At 39%, yeah, that would be bad, but uh, um, again, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't use it on a real windy day because it's going to wind up on other things, but uh, it's it's not that strong, and it's, it should not be a problem. Uh, Beverly, let me do this. Let me get Don to put you on hold because we're coming right up on news time and want to get those other two questions uh, right after the news. Everybody else, stay where you are. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. All right, let's get back to gardening. Uh, Beverly had a couple more questions we're going to handle, and then it'll be Robert and Cindy. Good morning again, Beverly. Um. Yeah, just a follow-up on what you were saying about the vinegar and the orange oil. That needs yes. to be sprayed on the leaves, not poured on the roots. It doesn't hurt to pour it on the roots, but it's uh, but it uh, in most cases it's unnecessary. It? No, it will not hurt the, the ones around it. Where you have some old tough ones that you have cut down, yes, you can pour a little bit on that stump and it'll help stifle regrowth, but it does not spread through the soil into surrounding plants. It does... Uh, 95% of it's good just absorbed through the foliage, and uh, but that's why it's a real good thing to do early in the spring before those uh, pesky things have developed a real good root system. What I've noticed when I cut a top off, like the, mm-hmm. so they get all the, the seeds off, right. um, then it'll re-sprout all this fresh little stuff below, and that would be good to spray on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the blasted the things that are growing under the oak trees, it's not going to 
get down in the soil and hurt the oak tree. Not in the least. And if you have oak sprouts coming up and you get, want to get rid of those little oak sprouts that are coming up, it will burn the foliage off those. But it is not systemic. It does not go into the root system or the trunk of the tree. It does not cause any problems to mama oak tree out there. Oh, well, that's good to know. Now, um, when you're cutting stuff, this is one of the other questions. Uh, when you use tools to cut, how do you clean those tools so that they don't carry that toxin? There's not enough toxin on there to cause any problem at all. There are a few places you should clean your cutting tools, but that's mainly to stop the spread of viruses. Uh, we do it in, you know, with tropical plants like orchids. We do it with a few yard plants like amaryllis, uh, which are susceptible to diseases that can be spread through the sap. But 99% of the plants out there, it's not at all necessary to clean those uh, cutting tools. If you do need to cut them, uh, just good old alcohol is as good as anything. Uh, Clorox will also sterilize them completely, uh, but it's a little bit harder on on metal tools. But uh, if you just wipe on off a blade or something, uh, I just use the old 70% isopropyl alcohol, and it does everything you need it to do. Okay, my last question. You know, poison ivy, you can just touch a poison ivy plant right. and you get poison ivy. Is pokeweed similar to that or does the leaf have to be broken and you get the juice for you to get the toxin? Pokeweed, unless you are extremely sensitive, uh, you would actually need to get some of the sap on you. Uh, poison ivy actually forms little globules of... Uh, of the material on the surface of the leaf. It's a very oily uh, mm -hmm. plant, and pokeweed is not. Pokeweed is, uh, tends to be you know, a much smoother, much drier leaf. So I'm not going to tell you if you're super sensitive, because some people, it only takes a tiny little bit, uh, kind of like Dr. Kirby talks about, it only takes one flea to kick off that allergic reaction in a puppy dog. Uh, for an extraordinarily sensitive person, uh, I'd be wearing uh, gloves, and not leather gloves. Unfortunately, leather gloves absorb some of that uh, material that can cause you a problem. Uh, wear a rubber glove, a heavy-duty dishwashing glove or something like that, and uh, you'll never sleeve. have to worry. What's long that? Sleeve, long sleeve shirt. Uh, yeah. I have places it's like a forest. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and there's no way I can work in there without those plants touching me. Yep. Yep. Well, uh, again, I, I wear a long sleeve sun shirt when I'm out working, and uh, I will wear, if I'm dealing with anything that's, that I feel like I have an allergic reaction to, um, you know, I'm going to wear some fairly long gloves. But typically speaking, uh, you know, and, and I get them at Academy. They're, I think, a Columbia brand. They're like $10, $12 a piece, and, uh, and that's how I protect myself because. Hey, you know, I'm out there doing everything from cutting cedar to uh, hackberries to just things that have gotten overgrown, and I find that's all the protection I need from pokeweed or other other things I'm dealing with. Uh, Columbia shirts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's just it, it's just it's it's a synthetic material, um, and I certainly you know wouldn't be picking around poison ivy and expecting it to protect me. But it's just, uh, I wear it more for sun protection than anything else, but I think it's probably all you'd need uh, if there's anything like that that you're sensitive to. Okay, and you can just throw them in the wash afterwards. You got it. All right, well, thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Beverly. Good luck with, with all your projects out there. Right. <laughs> thank you for the call. Bye -bye. Goodbye.
All right, next up is Robert. Good morning, Robert. Good good morning. How are you today? As the day is off to a good start, I know I'm going to be sweating before the day's over, but I'm drinking my Ultima and looking forward to getting out in it. Yeah, it's pretty good stuff. I think about, I buy the lemon, the blueberry, and the raspberry, and I think when I get the thing, then I should just combine them all. <laughs> well, uh, the raspberry's my favorite. The lemonade's the second favorite, but I'll I'll have to I'll have to get the the. Uh, uh, blueberry a try the grape was just a little too grapey for me but they're all good it's just uh you know i be maybe making up uh two or three two or three uh bottles of it before an afternoon's over and uh so that, that's why it's good there are a bunch of flavors out there so you don't get bored with one no agreed i also i do mine in a large insulated cup put a little bit of lemon juice in all flavors just <laughs> you and me both better yes sir better Absolutely. That same cup, I've got some tea in this morning. It'll have Ultima uh, and good water in it this afternoon. Uh, that's the way to do it. Uh, compost worm, indoor compost worms developed. Uh-huh. i got some fruit flies, which, I mean, these things are two and a half months old. Just this past week had fruit flies. Thoughts on anything I could put in the compost that would help with the fruit flies but not hmm. hurt the earthworms? Um, other BTI is one of the things that that's that's what comes to that's what okay. comes to yeah that's what comes to my mind and uh, you know don't confuse f- uh, fruit flies with fungus gnats um, fungus gnats are much more common fungus gnats are much smaller than fruit flies fruit flies you could probably just you know put some cheesecloth or something over you know the the bin where you're doing your vermiculture and that would keep them under control fungus gnats are smaller and uh it's really kind of hard to to screen them out but bti gets uh you know gets their larvae so you can pretty effectively eliminate them without any harm at all to your to your earthworms it's just a matter of uh, uh i soak either some mosquito bits or i break up a chunk of uh you know one of the dunks and uh, just soak that for a few hours and just use that to water the plants. I know you're moistening uh, your bedding in, in your worm bin, so uh, I, I just include some BTI in that. And that should take care of it, I because I think you probably have fungus gnats rather than fruit flies. They are fruit flies. I've taken pictures. Oh. We, they, these are indoors, so I had okay. uh, windowsills full of them, and I, you know, I've I'm in that bi- I've been in that business, so I'm, I yeah. did identify them correctly. Okay, um, you can try the BTI. I you know, I, the I don't know the total life cycle. I don't remember old Drosophila melanogaster or whatever that fruit fly is. If it doesn't have an intermediate larval stage, the BTI may or may not be effective against it. But you know, cheap and easy to try. Beyond that, I I probably would use a physical barrier, um, you know, some some lightweight mesh thing that uh, it goes on and off uh, pretty easily, and uh, that's it. It's just worms are worms are pretty tough. All your annelids are pretty tough, but we can't be using orange oil and things like that that we would use in another situation. Right. So uh, I did I did pulverize a mosquito dunk and dust uh-huh. in there. So maybe I'll I'll go ahead and do the same thing, but wet it. 
Um, do do a little research too, because uh, I've not tried it, but spinosad uh, is effective against. Uh, I'm sure it would be effective against them. I don't know um, whether or not it would be toxic to your worms at all. I don't. Uh, it is. You know, from what I've read. It is okay. From what I've read, the spinosad. Because my two thoughts. What do I have here? I have spinosad, and I have BT, and I have BTI within the right. dunk format. Yeah. So the BTI was what was recommended, what I researched, and yeah. And like I said, I figured, hell, that will maybe that will will help control other things when I use that uh, worm compost water. Sure. You know, it can't hurt. Oh, absolutely um, not. No, and, and BTI is going to be totally safe for your earthworms, and uh, um, you'll <laughs> you may control some other flying critters that, uh, but most of the ones that the BTI works against have an intermediate larval stage that uh, that is what it kills. But uh, okay. I would love to hear back from you. Yeah, if okay. you if if you find it effective, please let me know because I'm sure I'll get that question again. I'll do. All right, Bob, have a great day. You do the same, sir. Thank you, sir. Okay. Right, bye. bye. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Cindy and Terry and Judy, and Cindy is up next. Good morning, Cindy. Hey, good morning, Bob. I know that, boys. I, I see the name come up, and I always wonder which Cindy it is. It's good to talk to you. I haven't heard from you in a couple of weeks. I know it. I know it. I've been busy. And a few <laughs> times that I called, you were busy, so you know, I never got in. But um, And actually, then I hear Terry, and I don't know where he is, and I think, uh, is that Terry or not? <laughs> well, how can I help today? Yeah, I've got citrus questions, and then I want to ask you about this Ultima stuff, because Terry's had some leg cramps recently. Mm-hmm. So, uh, anyway, I don't know which I should ask first, my citrus questions or the Ultima. Well, the Ultima is uh, easy. The Ultima comes in uh, a little, you know, package that uh, it's just individual serving things. You put it in eight ounces of water and shake it up, and it's just a great electrolyte uh, material without the the sugar in it that you get in your sports drinks um i get it from Rhonda's nature's way i before Rhonda started carrying it i got it in the natural grocers and uh um anyway i don't know anybody else that carries it but i get it from Rhonda, and they're like six or eight flavors you just find which one you like best and let me tell you what i i find and terry would appreciate this that i'm a lot less tired in the afternoon because uh you know, it's just just getting those electrolytes in your system when you're sweating a lot is just real important. So, uh, uh, by all means, give it a try. Let me know what you think. Okay. Have you ever heard of Zip Fizz? Mm, no, I don't think I know that one. Okay. Well, I just yesterday he started it, and so we'll see how he's doing on it. Okay. I, I bought it at Costco. Uh huh. Um, and it has different flavors, and it's uh, same kind of thing with electrolytes uh-huh. in it and stevia. Yeah. Well, and it's just uh, it's just you know staying away from refined sugar. I think that's nothing kills your immune system the way refined sugar does. And uh, plus, we all don't need to be putting too many more pounds on. So uh, that's that's ultimate. Ultimate's been my choice ever since I found it, and I absolutely love it. So give it a try and see what you think at some point. So what's going on with the citrus? Yeah, um, 
Well, I was able to save uh, two Myers lemons and some Satsumas. Good. The growth is all above, above the grass and everything. But I'm noticing now that uh, the new growth is chlorotic. Uh-huh. And, I mean, I have been giving fertilizer. I don't know if I'm giving too much. And then with the rain that we had, uh, if it was, you know, too much water or what. And so I was just wondering what you recommend that well um again a couple of things next time you repot i'm just loving what azomite does as far as uh keeping it from happening i don't know that it would correct it but next time you repot mix a little bit of azomite into the soil and i think you're going to find you will have fewer yellowing problems in the meantime you know that yellowing, if it's not a water issue, it's either nitrogen, iron, or zinc. And um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I would, you know, probably put some green sand on, and then I'd be, you know, fertilizing pretty often. Plants are using more nutrients because they've, you know, had to come back from the severe cold, and thank God you protected yours from freezing. But uh, I'd be, you know, I'd, I'd be hitting them with that has to grow. And if you haven't, done so yet try doing what i do get some of medina's new liquid fish product and that's what it's called i think it's just called medina's liquid fish blend i've been alternating that with my has to grow and i've got the healthiest greenest orchids and vegetables and things that i've ever had and uh, i i think that that combination is better than either one of them alone so uh I know you. I know you feed regularly, but alternate back and forth between the Hesgrove plant and the fish blend, and I bet you'll get that yellowing taken care of quickly. Okay, I had had uh, some Espoma citrus, and yeah. I was using that too. So I was alternating with the Hesgrove and the Espoma citrus. Yeah, it, it's a good organic product, uh, uh, it, but it's it's a dry product, isn't it? Yes, uh-huh. Did you mix with water? I I just like the liquid fertilizers better. I mean that the stuff you're dissolving in water is good, but um, and I think it's fine to use now and then. But that that's kind of the that's kind of the dessert I would add on an occasional basis. I make my main meal something like the the Hestro plant uh, and or the liquid fish. Okay, yeah, I've, I've got some of that, so I'll try that. The problem, of course, now, if the one thing I would tell you to do if you're able uh, is on a product like that, Espoma uh, Citrus, which is a good organic product, but if you can, mix it with rainwater uh, rather than even well water or certainly not tap water because the fewer minerals you've got going into it, the less chance any of the nutrients are going to get bound up in a plant or in a form that your plants can't use. Okay. Okay. Um, now, my Mexican limes, we, again, we covered those, and, and they're doing okay. I'm getting um, blooms and, and little limes, but they're drying up and dropping off. Are you sure you're getting good pollination? Um, well, Look. we have tons of bees and butterflies and... Flies and everything else. So yeah, the bees are the only one that really do much of a job on pollinating. I would try because you know citrus will form and it'll get up to you know pea size, but if it gets up to that size and then drops off, uh, it's most 
commonly a pollination issue. Now, uh, even though you protected them from, you know, from a lot of damage from the cold, when we get a super cold winter, it seems like it takes the plants a little while to recover. Fortunately, on your Mexican limes, they can bloom and produce almost constantly. But I'd get your little paintbrush and try hand pollinating a few of the flowers and see if you have any luck, uh, more luck with uh, holding the fruit better. Okay, the fruit is getting larger than a pea size. It's getting about a dime size and yep. then drying up and dropping off. So That could be weather-related or it could be pollination. Uh, I, you know, by the time, give it another month, I think you'll find that they're going to be holding their fruit a lot better. But there are a lot of things that uh, simply got set back. I won't call them really badly damaged, but set back by that severe cold that are slower to be holding and producing fruit this year than normal. Okay, and are you suggesting doing any pruning at all on the limes? Nah, it's it's strictly cosmetic. You're not going to improve anything through pruning. You're just going to change the shape of the plant. But if you need to do that, have at it. You're not going to hurt anything, and since they are pretty much ever bearing you can do that at almost any time but i don't doesn't sound like you have a problem that pruning would help uh it's just if they're if you want to change the shape then feel free to prune uh do it now before we get too much later into the year okay and one quick question on rainwater i've always wanted to ask we we do have rainwater uh, catchment and i save some of them in gallon jugs Mm -hmm. and sometimes i get out algae in the jugs uh-huh. is that a problem using that water when it gets the algae absolutely not absolutely not but if you will um if you have any dark colored jugs uh if you were getting something like that in a brown jug like super thrive comes in or something like that um or uh-huh. at the very least the thick white jugs that medina uses are going to be a whole lot better than the clear jugs that you'll be buying, you know, distilled water or anything like that in because it's just a matter of keeping the sunlight uh, out of the water and you'll have less algae. So the darker the jug that you're storing it in, the less algae issue you will have. But algae is not a problem at all. I mean, it it uh, is not real good if you're using it for drinking water, but your plants don't care. Okay. Yeah, I just had that question. A lot of people in the Desert Rose community, they think that's terrible, awful, and I was like, I don't think so, but I no. was terrified. So. No, but, you know, and that's that's one thing I always talk to people about rainwater catchment tanks. You buy the cheaper tanks, you get enough uh, light through those things, you have an algae problem, you get the good thick wall tanks, and uh, it's not an issue at all. But, uh, yeah, we, we get the question a lot about people that are that are actually wanting to use a UV filter and uh, use the rainwater as drinking water, which is absolutely wonderful. But the quality of the tank makes a big difference, and the quality of the jugs, the thickness of the wall on the jugs that you're storing them in, storing your rainwater in, um, it uh, that'll make a difference in how much algae you get. If we're a real issue, you can always just paint those jugs with any kind of paint that would stick to the plastic. But uh, whatever, you know, and if you can just store them in a dark place, you're much less likely to have any algae growth. Okay, I'll do that. And I don't, you know, I don't have to worry about cleaning the jug out every time or anything like that. Right. Okay. All right, sounds good. Thank you for answering my questions. 
It's always a pleasure. Tell Terry hello, and uh, you guys have a great Sunday. I know we will talk again. Um, yeah. Let's go ahead and take one more call, Don, before we take a break. Let's talk to Terry. Good morning, Terry. Morning, Bob. Morning, sir. I've got a situation came up yesterday between a Xylosma and a Golden Retriever. And <laughs> <laughs> at, 80, at 85 pounds, he doesn't get the air he used to get at 35. And I was uh-huh. running him around, and he went to jump over that Xylosma, and he caught too much of it and broke the trunk off of at about three inches above the ground and about 20 percent of that about 20 percent of the top part is still connected and i I stood it back up and staked it and you know kind of hoping for the best but is there any way i can save that are you planning to grow that silosma up where it's uh six eight ten feet tall as a hedge or are you going to prune it to keep it lower no it's probably going to go up to about six foot or so yeah, no, I'm going to go ahead and make a cut at that point. Um, <coughs> excuse me, it will always be a weak point. Uh, if you were going to, you know, really make a low bush out of that, I would tell you to, you know, stake it up, in effect, splint it up, and it will heal to some degree. But I'd rather that, uh, you know, and it, but it's always going to be a weak point, and I don't want to let that thing get up six, seven feet tall and then break on you. It's better to go ahead and cut it now, let it come out below that point and make a much stronger growth. He just, uh, your golden decided to prune it a little bit for you without your permission. So it's, uh, it's, it's unfortunate, but no, I don't, I, I, I would not be comfortable trying to splint that and expecting it to regrow. Um, and it would stay alive. I mean, I've got an oak tree that's 18 inches in diameter that snapped, uh, about in a storm about six feet up. And that thing's been bent over for five years, and it's still growing just fine. But uh, I would never, you know, try to straighten it back up or park a car under or anything like that. Okay. Well, it's, it's in between two other ones that are about, they're over two foot tall now, and they're looking, well, yep. they all were looking good till yesterday. And uh, uh, would it... Is that is it going to uh, impede the growth of that one in the middle if I cut it if it starts out at ground level again? Oh no, it it'll you know if it's two three inches above it's going to come out and grow in a hurry. Uh, first year it's going to look a little weird. By the third year you're never going to know what happened. Okay, all right, all right. Well, he he's off the hook then. He's not in trouble. So. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to tell you, he probably felt a little guilt for about 30 seconds, but uh, uh, his attention span has moved on, and it's now your problem, not his. <laughs> well, that, that's no kidding there. Wow. I love my Goldens and Labs both, so I'm sure he's a good dog. He, he didn't mean to do it, Daddy, but like you say, once they, they, they lose some of that agility, and somebody sent me the funniest thing the other day, and it it could have been a Golden, but... It's uh, it said some dogs are not cut out for the agility trials, and this dog's going back and forth between a couple of poles, and then it, then he tries to jump it over this very low barricade, and the poor dog just his back feet are hung up on the on the bar across, and he's just <laughs> collapsed face down on the ground, and he's just lying there like, what do I do now? So, it, it, uh, you might Google dogs without agility or something like that. It's like a 15 second video, and it is one of the funniest things i've ever seen so you would appreciate that yeah i think i lived that one yesterday so okay. <laughs>
Well, you and the pup get out and enjoy this good day, and uh, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for the call this morning. Thank you, Terry. Certainly. Goodbye. All right. Now, let's get a break done, and Judy will be up next. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening, back to the phone lines. Could be Judy and Bill and Irma. Judy is up first. Good morning, Judy. Good morning, Bob. Um, I have a question about the butterfly weed. I wanted to peek when the monarchs come through. Because uh-huh. last year, I think it had, it was unpaling. So, and it's looking really good right now. So, should I trim a bunch of those flowers back so it there's new stuff comes out, or what? What do I do? The only thing I'd really recommend that you do is take off any seed pods that form and keep fertilizing because the butterfly weed can continue to bloom all summer long, but it will go into a reproductive phase if you start letting it make seed pods and it will stop flowering as much. So. Um, I might trim a little bit on it to uh, create some new growth because we're seeing a few monarchs even now, you know, come through and always stop by it. So uh, I I think if you just keep on fertilizing, you're going to keep on encouraging new growth and and, and plenty of blooms. But, But do... I know the temptation is let it make that seed pod and get a whole bunch of seed to start a whole bunch of new uh, the Asclepius plants, but um, I, I I wouldn't prune it heavily. A light haircut, still leaving a bunch of the buds that are on there, that's fine, but I sure wouldn't do any major pruning right now. It's just too hot, and it's going to take it too long to really come back out again. Okay, and I guess I really haven't fed it a lot. I spent mm-hmm. it in the spring. So you recommend feeding it quite a bit, huh? Oh, absolutely. Get some has-to-grow plant or something like that and mix up a little bit. And if you want maximum growth in flowers, do it every two, three weeks. Okay. I I did it heavily in the spring with the uh, growing green and mm-hmm. Well, again, I love I love growing green, and it has a long, long release pattern. But on something in active growth, I feel like a liquid product is going to give you a lot faster results. And uh, that's why, I mean, if you want to put a little growing green ground periodically, that's great. But uh, where it's really important to keep something in bloom, follow it up with a little bit of something like Hasturow plant or Medina's liquid fish. Do that every couple of weeks, and you'll be amazed at the results. Okay, one quick other question with that. There's aphids on it. Uh-huh. But they, they, that just seems to be a normal thing, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that, that, is that little gold aphid doesn't ever seem to spread and get on anything else. It just no. stays on the milkweed. Now, some people... Um, they want to kill them anyway, which you can do with like an insecticidal soap or something like that. I certainly would not use any of the typical things I would use for killing aphids. But uh, the 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 negative that people will tell you about that is the aphids bring in the beneficial insects. I think that's a good thing because I love having more assassin bugs and praying mantis and things like that around the garden. But they say, well, sometimes those will go after you know, your your larval caterpillars on there that you don't want to be encouraging a lot of beneficial insects to come in because they may not be able to tell the good guys from the bad guys. So uh, the folks that are concerned about that, they kill the, they kill the aphids. And again, uh, probably safer soap is the best thing to use. 
I've never seen it as that much of a deterrent because the beneficials tend to come in, eat up the aphids, and go away. But uh, that's that's the one thing that uh, some of the monarch people say is they they don't like those aphids because they do bring in the beneficial insects, but then they're worrying about the beneficials going after their caterpillars. Oh, that they don't bother me. Uh, yeah. One quick question: I want a honeysuckle to attract more bees. Mm-hmm. Which honeysuckle would you recommend? I wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, and if you want to attract if you want to attract bees, plant some Queen's Crown. That is, do you know Queen's Crown, uh, Rose Montana, and Tegonon Leptopus, whatever name you use for it? Are you familiar with that one? Yes, I am. That will that will attract twenty times more bees than honeysuckle will, and uh, the honeysuckles that bloom and had a lot of, have a lot of nectar are unfortunately can be pretty invasive. And uh, so I'm not a big fan of Japanese honeysuckle or Hall's honeysuckle or any of those. There is, uh, you know, there is our native coral honeysuckle, and it's a pretty plant. But I can't say it just brings in a ton of bees. But, man, if you're looking to bring in bees, uh, Queen's Crown's going to do it faster than any other vine that I have ever seen. And um, that's what I would think about doing. The other thing, you know, where you want to encourage bees for pollination and things like that, the mason bees, our native bees, are probably a far better pollinator than the European honeybees that everybody's so concerned about. Now, I believe in protecting the honeybees, but if you, uh, the the mason bees are a solitary bee as opposed to a uh, communal bee, but uh, you can attract them by taking an old cedar post or an old chunk of six-by-six cedar wood, drill a bunch of holes down in it, uh, three-eighths of an inch, half an inch in size, put a ring bolt on it, hang it up in the shade. Um, you will find the mason bees come in and colonize, lay their eggs, because it's a whole lot easier to have a pre-made hole than for them to have to eat their way into the wood. And uh, you, if, you, if you're wanting the bees around as pollinators, your mason bees are going to be a lot easier to please and probably a lot more effective pollinators. Well, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. You just drill holes in a piece of cedar. Well, in an old piece of cedar. I mean, if you, and you know, I live on a few hundred acres of cedar, and uh, the mason bees, they'll find a dead cedar tree, and you'll suddenly see all these big holes appear in it. Here at the nursery, we use a lot of uh, rough cedar 6 by 6s in our construction, and the mason bees seem to like those. But uh, you don't want to use green cedar wood. It's still got too much sap, too much rosin in it. But, uh, you know, for a chunk of an old uh, fence, post, uh, cut it down to about a foot or so long, put a ring bolt in the top of it so you can hang it in a shady spot, but uh, you know, drill drill two or three sizes of holes because we have like 20 different species of mason bees that uh, occur in our area and anything from a 3 8 inch hole up to about a 5 8 inch hole they will make use of, they come in, they lay an egg, they put a little seal across it, lay another egg and uh, they're 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 interesting things. They look kind of like a bumblebee, but they don't have the yellow on them. And um, the little ones, old oh, Malcolm Beck used to call them plug bees because they'll get into your wind chimes and plug them up to where they don't ring in the process of doing their nesting. But uh, research shows that mason bees are actually much better pollinators than uh, honeybees. You can't 
trap them and haul them across the country like they do our hives of bees. So uh, we're always going to try to protect our European bees as well. But uh, it's just kind of way Mother Nature intended in the hill country. Uh, encourage your mason bees and pollination won't be a problem. Well, that sounds like it sounds wonderful. Okay, well, I'll try that. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you for the call. Um, Don, let's get, uh, let's see here. I guess this would probably be our last break of the show out of the way, and then we'll come back and visit with Bill and Irma. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. Well, I got up early on this Lord's Day with the sun peeking through the curtains. Thought I'd wait a line for a couple good hours and still make the 10 o'clock sermon. But the sky is blue and the breeze is cool and they're biting good not to mention. If I live right now, I'd make it somehow, but I doubt I could pay attention. I'd rather be on the head I do not know how you do it. <laughs> That's a brand new one. I don't think you've ever you've ever given us before. But for uh, for a Sunday fishing song, I don't think you could do much better than that. Those of y'all that don't know, my good engineer, Mr. Don Cooper Stevens, the man who makes uh, Jack Riccardi sound good in the afternoons on weekdays. Uh, he always gives us a fishing song or a related song uh, for the last commercial break of the show. Thank you. Thank you, Don. All right, uh, looks like we are going to uh, finish up with Bill and Judy and Regina, and Bill is up first. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm laughing right now. That was a pretty good song. It was. I love the fishing song Don finds for you. And I don't, I don't know how he does it, but uh, anyway, how can I help today? I'm growing some cantaloupes that I saved from seeds from store-bought melons. They're a Tuscan mm-hmm. melon, and uh, they're grown beautifully. You got them on one of your six-foot tomato cages, and I'm having problems with something eating the end out of the melons as they ripen. I think it's insects rather than rodents because they're not chewing through the mesh netting that I'm hanging them with. How do I prevent okay. those bugs from getting into the melon? It's hard to say without knowing what the bugs are, but my first uh, line of defense would probably be diatomaceous earth. DE is going to take care of most all the beetles, and that is going to be the most common culprit. Um, uh, pill bugs, uh, doubt they're going to crawl up that high, but DE would get them as well. Um, I would, you know, I take a, I would take a close look. If you see anything that looks like caterpillar or caterpillar damage, of course, BT with a little molasses in it, you spray it once and it can stay on there for weeks. But uh, uh, beetles are tougher, and there's not really anything with any residual. Spinosad is what we use to kill them when we can spray it on them. But as long as that BT or as long as that DE stays dry. It's going to be, I think, a very effective deterrent. And unfortunately, having it stay dry has not been a real big issue 
<laughs> lately. Now, I did get some rain Thursday, very blessed with a good rain, but uh, DE is sure where I would start. Well, I know the fruit flies and gnats are opportunistic, and they're getting into the opening, but I, I can't sure. figure out how they're getting in, and it's right at the blossom end. And just yeah. about the time I think, okay, I'm going to wait one more day to pick that melon, I go out and look, and there's a hole in it. Uh, well, I bet you it could be a bird. They're not dumb, and uh, mockingbirds are big, big fruit eaters. So, uh, um, I and there's not much way to stop them except some sort of bird netting, you know, draped over the cage, which might be a good investment. But uh, um, and and like you say, once you get the little fruit flies and things like that and there you end up cutting off a third of the melon uh, and sometimes even the remaining part's not as good but if it if it's just something poking holes and the insects getting in i'd be willing to bet you it's a mockingbird okay well i'll take a look and i was wondering if i could paint the end with some spinosad so it's not on the plant as a whole but just on the, the blossom end i don't know if that would be a deterrent um wouldn't be a deterrent to a bird but um, it's, it certainly would be to a beetle. Now, uh, what you could dab on there uh, would be some super hot pepper, just the hottest pepper oil you can find. I'm thinking about I kind of uh, uh, enjoy, well, no, come to think of it, the birds are not really going to be affected by the hot pepper. If yeah, it were a little squirrel or something like that, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm I'm afraid bird netting's probably gonna be probably gonna be your best bet. But uh uh does the uh, damage seem to be occurring during the day or at night or do you know? I don't know, but when I look at the area around the insult where the opening is on the plant, there are some mm-hmm. little areas of the rind that have been eaten away and it looks like it's insect if I was a, a betting man. It doesn't look like a beak that stabbed it. Well, I I would think mouse, uh, but uh, try try dusting heavily with DE. If it is a beetle, if it is an insect, that will stop it. Um, but uh, I, I when I see the damage, it's it's usually a rodent, and uh, um, little mice can climb up like that, and they they will nibble away at it. And don't have to make a very big opening to get the bugs in there, and then there goes the melon. Uh, nothing is chewed through the netting, though. The, the mm-hmm. hole is underneath the netting, and the netting is intact. So I'm not sure, but I'll, I'll give it a try. Yeah, let's let's start with the DE and let me know how successful you are. I will. And then uh, another question on tomatoes. I love the Juliet variety, and I know they're a hybrid. How do the mm-hmm. commercial growers produce seed for a hybrid that gives you a Juliet tomato? Well, Juliet is actually in getting close to an heirloom variety. And when you self-pollinate something over and over and over, you you um, kind of segregate the, the gene pool. You turn genes always occur in pairs, and you want the two halves to be very similar in their composition. We refer to it as a homozygous condition. And by selectively self-pollinating, choosing the ones that come true, self-pollinating again, choosing the ones that come true, Juliet comes pretty true from seed. It uh, is not a not a real old heirloom like Sun Gold or Sweet 100 has even been around a long time. But uh, it's one that just through 
selective, uh, not, I wouldn't even call it breeding, I just call selection, natural selection. You just keep replanting the seed from the ones that are Juliet shaped and Juliet flavored. That's how you get there. So if I were to save some of the seeds from Juliet, there's a reasonable chance that they're going to grow true in the second generation? As long as you didn't have other varieties of tomatoes planted close to it, okay. which would wind I'll up in cross-pollination. By far my favorite tomato. Well, and again, I had this question from somebody earlier in the show that wanted to, uh, you know, keep a strain true, and I was suggesting that Donna Cherry, and I suggested wrapping at the time, you know, he's getting the the, uh, cher- the tomatoes that he wants to save for seed, wrapping with something like insulate so you don't have pollen blowing from one plant to another, but... Uh, uh, Bill, I'm going to hold it there so I can try to get these other two folks in. Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, let's talk to Judy. Good morning, Judy. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I have a wisteria that is going everywhere, and uh, do I cut those runners off? I've run out of fence line to put them on. And they're taking root in the ground. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're blooming, too, this time of year. Yeah, what I would do if it were mine, I would wait until after it's bloomed in the spring, and then I would cut it right after that. Because any cutting you do on now is going to reduce the number of blooms you're going to have. And so um, if I could put off pruning, I would. It's not going to hurt the plant to prune it. I mean, you can prune away all you want to right now, and it's not going to bother the wisteria, but it is going to reduce the number of flowers you'll have next spring. So uh, keeping that in mind, uh, prune it or not. But wisteria can be very vigorous and uh, and sometimes kind of gets out of hand. Well, I mean, uh, the ones uh, crawling on the ground, it would hurt if I cut those off <laughs> No, it's not going to hurt the plant at all, but it just means uh, even those ones crawling on the ground could have blooms on them next spring. So uh, just the more you prune, the fewer flowers you're going to have next spring, but you're not going to hurt your plant at all. It's going to... Uh, it's still going to have plenty of flowers, and it's still going to do just fine. So you just kind of have to judge how far out of hand it is and prune appropriately. But pruning this late in the year, whether it's wisteria, whether it's flowering quince, whether it's spirea, whether it's Indian hawthorn, um, not going to have a lot of time to put on more wood that would bloom next spring. So things that bloom in the spring, we tend to let them bloom and then prune immediately afterwards. Uh, okay. So you you may reduce your pruning, but you're not going to hurt your plant, or your flowering, but you're not going to hurt your plant. Okay. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> My pleasure. Congratulations. Not everybody does well with wisteria here, but you sounds like you might have the Texas wisteria, which is a uh, a real good choice. Well, let's go ahead and talk to Regina, and we'll get your question answered. Good morning. Good morning, and thanks. Um, I was actually curious about... Um, the shelf life of spinosad, if it's been exposed to maybe sun and maybe even some moisture, some of it is crumbly on the top. Crumbly on the top, and this is a I'm liquid spinosad? No, this is actually the Captain Jack's kind of powdery stuff. Okay, okay. Um, it's definitely reduced its efficacy. It's uh, it's based on a natural toxin produced by a soil bacteria. Um, I if it's if it's gotten real hot, 
uh, I probably would get some fresh. I mean, uh, if it's kept at room temperature, it has a shelf life probably three to four years. So it is one of our better insecticides as far as uh, holding that uh, holding that efficacy. But uh, if it gets real hot uh, or if it is exposed more, just being exposed to air than anything else, mm-hmm. yeah. probably limited effectiveness. Okay. And that, um, if I get some, um, get some more added to the soap, and you say that, is that a good combination, that powdery form of the spinosad, or it's better liquid? I, I think it's better liquid, and I, I get the stuff that's already mixed. They call it spinosad soap, and that's already your good mix of spinosad and insecticidal soap, and that way you don't have okay. to worry about mixing it yourself. I had heard you use, say that, and since I had the two different products separate, I thought, well, maybe I can at least use this up. You, and, yeah, um, yeah, you can certainly do that. You can certainly use it up, but next time buy the combination, you'll be a little yeah. better off. Yeah. And we're out of okay. time for gardening Thank right you. now.